you're listening to a Two Jackets podcast. Check out more at twojackets.com. Welcome to Sham Fiction Presents Just the Fix, Volume 4. The fourth in a series of special episodes where we take just the cold, hard fix that we've written over the past several weeks and put them together into one hour or two or maybe three of easy listening. This is the fourth quarterly installment, which means, as you've probably seen from our last episode that we posted, we have just completed a year of sham fiction. So this is all of the fix from the last quarter of 2016. So, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to shut up, and then we're going to just listen to some great uh, fan fiction-based entertainment for the next few hours. Maybe you're on a train, maybe you're on a plane, maybe you're in an automobile. Either way, you're going to hear some stories. Some of them are going to be great. Some of them are going to be less great. But they're all going to be a little great. Some of them, not safe for work. You will notice that this has an explicit tag, this episode. So, you know, maybe don't wa- uh, don't uh, don't listen to it around children. Just a suggestion. Anyway, let's get on with it. Just the fix. Take it away. From episode 37, Eric writes Suicide Squad, based on the film written and directed by David Ayer. The disembodied voice of Santana, codenamed El Diablo, buzzed throughout the windowless room like an angry wasp. Traitor! He said over and over, between the intermittent pops and distortion-laden booms that accompanied his flaming attacks. Of the eight small monitors arranged in two rows of four on the concrete wall, only one currently displayed an image. The rest were just popcorn static, digital noise that told Waller that most of the team had either died or, more likely had destroyed their headsets in an act of defiance. The last working display contained the label Coal Flag. It was unsurprising that the colonel's feed would be the only one still active, and his audio was now being fed through a small set of speakers mounted above the monitors. In the fuzzy, digital-artifacted video stream, Waller could see that Flag was holding his ground behind a cement truck, occasionally firing bursts of semi-automatic rifle fire towards the unmistakably menacing form of El Diablo, the audio of which translated to an unlistenable drum roll of extremely loud static. Mute, Waller said, and the audio cut out. A flash of white light consumed the screen for a moment before Flag turned away from the fireball and began sprinting the opposite direction in silence, looking for new cover from the powerful metahuman's flaming onslaught. It was war. Task Force X had fallen apart at the seams, and the Joker was there to remind her. Why can't they all just play nice, he said, (laughs) punctuated by a disturbing titter. Why, your commandos are a regular suicide squad, aren't they? (laughs) She glared at him a moment before nodding to the two AR-16-wielding guards standing to either side of the deranged clown. They both dutifully kicked his legs out from under him and pressed the barrels of their guns to to the green hair on the back of his head. He laughed again, louder this time, his ghost-wise white face stretching into a cartoonish mask of sadistic glee. She reached into the inside pocket of her jacket and grabbed the last cigarette out of the crumpled pack of silk cuts. She casually put it to her mouth and lit with a match while watching the monitor, all the while trying to ignore the Joker's insidiously growing laughter. It was galling, 
Being stuck in this bunker with the likes of this man, if you could call him a man. Unfortunately, she was forced to take drastic measures and sequester herself and her prisoner in a room immune to the Enchantress's powers. It was a quirk about the thick walls and old lead paint that Task Force X had discovered entirely by accident. As long as she was in this room and the Enchantress was somewhere out there, the witch wouldn't be able to affect her mind. On the monitor, Flag turned back and lobbed a grenade towards El Diablo. It exploded mere feet from the pyromancer, but he casually directed the blast away from himself and back towards Flag. The concrete room shook slightly, and dust fell from the cracks in the ceiling. The Joker's laughter subsided, and he said, Awful close, don't you think, Miss Waller? Maybe it's time you take Agent Scully and the Colonel out. She didn't need to look at him to know that he was referring to the black metal box sitting on the desk beneath the monitors. Inside were several toggle switches, each labeled with the name of a different member of the team. She eyed it for a moment, but turned to the Joker, putting on a grim face. And what if I decided to take out Dr. Quinzel instead? Predictably, he laughed at this. Maybe you should have put one of your fancy little bombs inside the witch's head. Though, I will say that this is much more entertaining, watching them (laughs) fight against themselves on pay-per-view. More laughter. For a moment, Waller regretted missing her opportunity to shove a chip inside this asshole's brain. (laughs) But then she remembered that she didn't need it. Kill him, she said coldly. Both of her guards cocked their weapons, and a flash of genuine panic flew across the Joker's face. It was the most satisfying thing she had ever seen. 86 that, she said immediately, and the guards obediently stood down. The maniac looked to either side, breathing heavily, before he started laughing again. Oh, you're funny, he said with a tone of glee. I underestimated you. You'll find that I'm completely in control of this situation, she said, turning back towards the monitor, which now displayed Colonel Flagg sprinting down a very familiar back alley. What's he doing coming this close? She thought to herself. Control? The Joker asked with a laugh. What about your Boy Scout? Flagg was his name? He's gone a wee bit rogue, it seems. And doesn't he have his own kill box? She wasn't sure how he knew about Flagg's box, but she nodded. (laughs) And aren't you afraid he's going to use it? She was. Flagg sprinted through a door to get out of the alley and right up to a feminine figure that appeared to be smoking at the seams. For a brief moment, the video feed was filled with the hauntingly beautiful yet distorted face of Dr. June Moon. Not Moon, Waller reminded herself. The Enchantress. Moon isn't steering this ship anymore. Volume up, she said aloud, and the audio feed returned to the little room. She only caught the tail end of whatever Flag had been saying. Won't let them hurt you, he said, trying to catch his breath. Before Moon could respond, however, a roaring burst of static filled the speakers, accompanied by another flash of light on the screen. This explosion was so close that Waller could feel the rumble below her feet. Flag gave a pained scream, and the, light on, and the light on screen made way for darkness as he covered his face to protect himself from the flames. El Diablo's voice rang out, rang out again. Hiding, Colonel? She can't protect you. I've been let loose, a time bomb ready to blow. I'm more powerful than her in every conceivable way. 
<laughs> After a moment, the image brightened again, and a very familiar black box appeared in frame, held in front of Flag's face by his gloved hands. He's going to take out the baldy, Joker said calmly from behind her. Better stop him or the witch wins the day. He laughed quietly to himself with apparent relish. The box opened, and an identical set of switches to the one on Waller's desk appeared in the small monitor. Although the feed was not of high quality, it was obvious that this box was the exact twin of Waller's own. Save for one small detail. She looked down at her own kill box, noting the additional, unlabeled switch below the others. The one that she hadn't told Flag about. Flag doesn't have a brain chip, she said aloud. It wasn't a lie. Colonel Flagg had been assigned leadership of the ragtag team of superpowered criminals, but he himself was not one of them. He wouldn't have to endure the indignity of having a small explosive device placed inside his skull. That didn't mean, however, that Waller had refrained from creating safeguards in case Flagg's position became compromised. <sighs> her finger hovered over the unlabeled switch, waiting for Flagg to force her to use it. It was a worst-case scenario contingency, to be sure, if she decided to pull back the clear plastic cover and hit the switch, it would all be over. She hesitated. I knew you were soft, El Diablo taunted again as he slowly walked closer and closer to Flag, the skull tattoo on his face looking like the very specter of death in the dancing light of his flames. For the first time, Waller could see that the entire facade of whatever building Flag and Moon had taken shelter in had been torn away by the metahuman's flames and the other members of Task Force X stood at a distance, watching stoically from the street. This struck Waller as odd. Why are they holding back? She wondered, glancing at the distant figure of Floyd Deadshot Lawton, holding his sniper rifle non-threateningly to the side. Deadshot could take Flag out in his sleep. And why isn't the Enchantress fighting back? I could kill all of you right now! Flag shouted, desperation in his tinny voice. Quinzel, Harkness, Lawton, Jones, and Yamashiro all stood motionless in the distance, no reaction whatsoever. If Waller wasn't inside this tiny room, she might have suspected that Moon was playing with her mind. But you won't, El Diablo said in a voice that was quieter and more calm than any Waller had yet heard him use. Because you're not one of the bad guys, Colonel. So you can't do what bad guys do. Kill each other. And at that moment, Waller knew that he was right. Until now, she had been hoping that Flagg's betrayal had all been a feint, a method with which to gain Dr. Moon's, no, the Enchantress's trust, in order to get the heavy hitters close enough to take her out. The pieces were all in place, after all. Here they were, all in the same room, and the all-powerful Enchantress was apparently non-combative. He won't stand aside, she thought, and he definitely won't kill Moon himself. She flipped open the plastic cover that protected the unlabeled switch. The Joker's voice jarred her. I'm dying to see what your little toy will do, Waller. He had no idea how accurate that sentiment really was. She gripped the switch between her thumb and forefinger. This was it. Suddenly, the heavy steel door at the back of the room clanged open, and a small blur, blur of motion shot in front of her. Amanda Waller did not possess reflexes acute enough to actually see the speeding object, but half a moment later, she discovered that her cigarette was no longer in her mouth. 
were she to witness the event with the aid of a high-speed camera, <laughs> she would have been able to see with perfect clarity that the speeding blur was a run-of-the-mill wooden boomerang thrown by none other than Digger Harkness, a man who, according to the monitor Waller was staring at, was currently outside on the street impassively watching Colonel Flagg threaten to blow up his brain. The speeding boomerang, in a feat of amazing precision and dexterity, <laughs> spun directly towards Waller's mouth and slid underneath her last silk-cut cigarette with enough force and friction that it popped away from her red lips and clung to the boomerang as it spun away from Waller's unharmed face and back towards the door. As it returned to Harkis Harkness's hand, it passed his own waiting mouth and deposited the still-lit cigarette there, as if placed by an invisible hand. The entire trick took less than a second. Harkness grinned. Good eye, mates, he said jovially as Waller and the Joker reeled from the sudden onslaught of stimuli. The intruder sucked Waller's cigarette down to the filter, flicked it away, then said, I bet you weren't all expecting to see Captain Boomerang here to... But he was cut off as his, as his skull exploded outward with the force of a quarter stick of dynamite. Waller let the toggle switch return to the neutral position as Harkness's body slumped to the floor. His boomerang still held firmly in his dead hand. It was all apparently too much for the Joker, who doubled over in hysterical laughter. In another blink, two gunshots rang out like cannons in the tiny concrete room, and both of the guards that had been standing to either side of the Joker lay dead on the ground their bodies slumped on top of what remained of Harkness. The Joker was overcome by another violent fit of laughter as the tall, dark form of Floyd Lawton, codenamed Deadshot, stepped into the room, both pistols trained on Waller. Okay, so you do have your own death box, huh? He demanded as he stepped over the corpses he just made and closed the distance, distance to Waller. He seemed to notice Harkness's body, but just shook his head and moved on. <laughs> Waller blinked. She gave Lawton an appraising stare, then turned to look at the tiny monitor on the wall. There, in the fuzzy display, looking as if he hadn't moved at all, stood another Floyd Lawton standing behind El Diablo, sniper rifle still in hand. Furthermore, he still appeared to be standing next to a perfectly intact Digger Harkness. What the hell? She thought, her mind spinning. Only one of me is real. Lawton said coolly, as he closed the gap between them, bent down, and pressed his forehead against hers. Waller was so surprised by this that her grip tightened instinctively on the kill box, her finger still on the switch. Nah, so fast, Waller, Lawton continued, shiny bald head still pressed against her. You flip that switch and blow up my noodle, I'm taking yours with me. He then pressed the barrel of a handgun to the underside of her chin. Same goes for any of those other noodles. Waller thought fast. He was right. If she hit the switch marked Lawton, it would be suicide. The headless mess that was Harkness was enough proof of the explosive power of the brain chips. She cursed to herself, realizing that although the Enchantress was unable to affect her mind while they were separated by the lead-laden walls, that didn't stop her from magically affecting what appeared in front of Flagg's head-mounted video camera. But how much of the video feed is illusion, and how much is really happening? The Joker continued to cackle like a hyena at the center of the room, Harkness's blood pooling at his knees. Waller knew she had been outmaneuvered, but if she could flip that unlabeled switch before Lawton killed her, she might still manage to save the day. 
It would be violent and chaotic, and she had no way of knowing if the Enchantress would actually be destroyed. But then again, Waller wouldn't be around to care about the outcome. Her superiors would probably dismiss her for her apparent lack of follow-through, but what other option did she have at the moment? The contingency was created for just such an occasion as this. In that last moment, with Lawton's bald head pressed against her hairline and the Joker gasping for breath between violent fits of laughter, she couldn't help but think about the Enchantress. The witch had projected ghost images of all of the members of Task Force X in front of Flag, so that the team could sneak up on Waller without arousing suspicion. The possessed woman had clearly had some sort of change of heart and had begun helping them. But why? Was it because Waller had gained custody of the Joker? Did Quinzel goad her into helping somehow in order to get back to her Mr. J? What did this, quote, suicide squad do to calm the old witch's fury and turn her powers of illusion to their own benefit? The illusions. In a rush of clarity, it all clicked into place, and Waller would have had to reach for the desk for support if Lawton wasn't there holding her in place. She stared at the screen, out of the corner of her eye for a long moment, her breath quickening. The Enchantress was much more clever and much more powerful than she had ever imagined. If she could project a fake Lawton and Harkness out in front of Flagg's camera for Waller's benefit, then she could use those same illusions to dupe the team into doing exactly what she wanted them to do. She could maneuver Flagg and El Diablo into fighting one another as a distraction. She could trick Harkness into breaking into Waller's magic-proof room. And once that door was open... Waller's own mind was putty in the Enchantress's hands. All she had to do then was put Waller in a no-win situation. Moon knew exactly what she would do when that happened. Put a permanent end to Task Force X. She thought about the unlabeled switch and smiled. Dr. Moon, you are far too clever for your own good. She said smoothly, her eyes locked onto Lawton's. Lawton frowned and stared at her for a long moment, pulling his head away from Waller's. Finally, in a voice that was not his own, he said, Well, if you won't kill them, then I'll do it myself. And in an instant, a thick black smoke erupted from Lawton and swirled around Waller like ink striking water. She fell backwards against the desk, no longer supported by the tall man, who exploded in a fit of illusory magic and took on the slight, haunting form of the Enchantress herself. The smoke circled the room like a tiny hurricane, then cleared. Waller spun, seeing that the two guards who had been shot in the back by the specter of Lawton were no longer lying dead on the ground, but appeared to be unconscious but alive and leaning against the back wall near the door. The eight monitors, which had all been static a moment before, now displayed six bright digital images, all of which seemed to be staring at a dark, imposing figure in a cape, and... Were those cat ears? The only two monitors that still displayed static were marked Slipknot and Harkness. <laughs> Waller wondered at this for a moment, but quickly saw that Digger Harkness's headless corpse was still lying there with blood pooling in frightening amounts in the center of the room. The Joker was nowhere to be seen, but the bloody footprints that led out the still-open door and into the dark hallway beyond were explanation enough. Dr. Moon, smoking at the seams like the embers of a dying fire, struck out with both hands and grabbed the kill box free of Waller's grip, pushing her back against the side wall as if she had been thrown by Killer Croc. 
She struck the concrete hard, which knocked the wind out of her. She slumped to the cold floor and tried to regain her breath. You're smart to have given Flag a fake kill box, Waller, she said as she inspected the simple black box. His mind was too easy to overthrow. Turns out he had a bit of a soft spot for me. So she's already tried to use Flag's kill box to take out the team, Waller thought, and she's going to try again with mine. She strained to speak through gasping breaths. Don't! So this is the master switch, Moon, no, the enchantress asked as she gripped the unlabeled toggle. She thinks the button will take out the whole team, Waller thinks with excitement. A master switch. She struggled to respond, playing into the enchantress's assumptions. Don't! Do it! Please! Oh, Amanda she said, almost sounding like the old Dr. Moon again. Grown attached to your suicide squad, have you? Surprising, since you've already taken two of them out yourself. I'm just finishing the job for you. You sure are, Waller mused to herself, as she closed her eyes and smiled. She thought about all the details of the contingency plan that she never told Flag or the rest of the squad about, delighting in the fact that Dr. Moon had no way of knowing that the Master Switch in fact served not to set off, but to disarm all of the tiny bombs that lay within the brain cases of each member of Task Force X, freeing them from bondage once and for all. On top of that, <laughs> Waller was the only living soul who knew about the two additional explosives housed within the twin kill boxes that were set to go off three seconds afterwards. She felt a brief pang of guilt for Colonel Flagg's imminent fate and hoped that there was nobody else standing within 30 feet of him. The Enchantress flicked the switch. Silence. Moon waited half a beat before saying, I was kind of hoping for a bigger bang. She gets it. Waller, Moon, and the little concrete room cease to exist. <laughs> the end. <laughs> From episode 38, Andrew writes I Am Not a Serial Killer, based on the novel by Dan Wells. The moon was bright that night. The shadows of the trees were dark and distinct. I probably could have done without my flashlight. It would have been more discreet. But I feared losing my footing on uneven ground and possibly breaking an ankle. Why even bring up discretion? I thought to myself. Would it matter if you were seen? I was already being watched. I caught him out of the corner of my eye. His tall, rigid frame lurked nearby, drifting along with me. His features were indecipherable, as always. He usually appeared in situations like this, when the lights were dim and the outcome unknown. Why are you here, Mr. Monster? I whispered. Hmm. What do you think is going to happen? He didn't answer. I heard the scream ten minutes ago. It was Brooks. I was sure of it. I'd been moving caskets out into the garage, like Mom asked, when I first saw her and Rob in the backyard next door. They didn't pay me any mind. Few people ever did. They were laughing. He was chasing her around the yard, and then they disappeared into the trees. I heard the scream a few minutes later. When I heard it, I first thought about how playful they had appeared in the backyard, but the scream didn't seem to match. 
It wasn't a short squeal of delight or surprise, like I often heard from the girls in the hallways at school. This was deeper, more rich, more sincere. <sighs> so I grabbed a flashlight, and now there I was, trudging through the thick grove behind my house, breaking my first rule. Don't follow people, John, I thought. But this is different, <laughs> isn't it? Brooke may be in trouble. I glanced to my right to check on Mr. Monster, but he wasn't there. I felt a bit of relief for a moment. I was suddenly alone with the gentle buzz of the night. Then I stepped on a twig and heard a slight crack. The sound brought a shudder over me and a memory into my head. My arm misshapen, Rob standing over me. What did she see in him? I thought. Why him? After all that he'd... Another scream. Louder this time. I was either closer to its source, it was more powerful, or both. I still couldn't tell for certain if it was Brooke, but in any case, it did not sound playful to me. There was fear in that scream, wasn't there? I was so sure of it. I thought of Rob standing over me again, and felt my pace quicken. The steady brushing of the fallen leaves followed my steps. I remembered how he grinned, how I had not seen remorse in him that day over what he'd done. More twigs snapped below my feet. The buzz of the night fell away along with any desire for discretion. The ground began to decline, and I heard the faint sound of rushing water. I knew a small river was back here, it was about a quarter of a mile from my house, but I hadn't realized I'd come that far. The hill became more steep as I approached the river. I blundered my way down the slope, refusing to slow my pace, until I slipped on a patch of loose dirt and leaves and lost hold of my flashlight. It tumbled down the hill and out of sight. The batteries must have come loose. I cursed, but continued forward without finding or without stopping to find it. I was almost at the river. I reached its edge at a steep point some twenty feet above the surface of the water. It flowed swiftly there, causing the sound of rushing water to fill my ears and drown out any other noise. I looked around for any sign of Brooke or Rob. I didn't have to look long before I saw movement to my left about thirty yards down a gradual slope. They were in a patch of long grass on the outside edge of the rocky river shore. Rob was on top of Brooke, pinning her to the ground. I thought of Rob standing over me, my arm bent where it shouldn't have. I dashed forward. As I advanced, I began to hear Brooke. She seemed to be struggling against Rob. I could hear her groan and grunt as she attempted to break free of his grasp. As I grew closer... Her voice became more and more clear, and so did the scene. I ceased my advance. I froze. I was about fifteen yards away from them, and everything was in view now. Rob's pants around his ankles, hmm. Brooke's legs wrapped around him. She moaned as he thrust himself into her again, and again, and again muttering affirmatives and curses between each breath. Oh, God, she cried with between clenched teeth. Right there. Oh, yeah, right fucking there. Indeed, I thought. Right fucking there. I felt idiotic. What had I expected? For Rob to be like Ted Bundy, luring his female victims to their demise with his charm and good looks? He's an asshole and a thug, not a remorseless killer. 
and now that asshole was fucking the girl next door. I stared at them, thrust after thrust after thrust. I just couldn't understand why Brooke would go all the way with a guy like him. She's an idiot, I thought, a heat welling inside me. They're both idiots. And you're the remorseless killer, a voice whispered in my ear. I felt a delicate touch on my right shoulder. I turned away from the asshole and the girl next door to see the source of the touch. A hand of long, black fingers. It rested on my shoulder for a moment, then ran itself down my arm in a light caress until it reached my hand. I was holding something. I hadn't noticed it before then. A kitchen knife. (sighs) When did I get this? I thought. I'd been in the driveway moving the caskets out into the garage. Then I'd heard moaning caught in my ears, pulling my attention back ahead. Out of the shadows behind where the asshole and the girl next door lay, the dark figure of Mr. Monster appeared. He drifted right up next to them, but they paid him no mind. He stretched both arms outward, as if presenting them to me. Two lovers, all alone. I thought of Lake Berryessa, 1969. There had been two there that day, too. They'd been a little older than these idiots before me. They were college students, but they had acted similarly. They had wandered off alone for a picnic by the water, and they were met by someone they didn't expect. (laughs) A man in the hood of an executioner. The man only played that role for one of them that day, although he'd intended to end both of them. He'd thrust, and thrust, and thrust his knife into them, and still one got away. That man called himself the Zodiac. (laughs) He raised the knife before me, or I raised the knife before me. It appeared to be a tool capable of succeeding where the Zodiac had failed. Mom always kept the kitchen knives as sharp as the scalpels in the prep room. I took a step forward, and another. The thin form of Mr. Monster expanded outward behind the asshole and the girl next door, forming a curtain of black around them. Their entangled bodies were now all I could see, moaning, grunting. I could focus on nothing else. The same question turned over and over in my mind, why him, why him, why him, and then they switched. The asshole rolled over and the girl next door positioned herself on top of him with her back to me. As she did this, she tossed her long brown hair and it caught the moonlight just right to cast a brief shimmer. It was so quick, but it halted my advance. I observed the pale, smooth skin of her back. I thought of that skin under fluorescent lights body resting supine on the clean metal surface of the prep room table. I reached out to touch its cool, unblemished surface and saw that my hand had changed. It was now black, with long fingers, like the hand of a dark shadow stretched against a wall. I pulled the hand to my chest and looked back down at the body on the table. Its perfect, pale surface was no more. Now it was perforated by narrow holes surrounded by purple skin, Knife wounds. Kitchen knife wounds. How many? Fifty? Seventy? A hundred? More and more seemed to split open, 
as if a phantom knife were continuing its work. I turned away from the body, and was met by Mr. Monster. Even under the bright fluorescent lights, his form was dark and indistinguishable. He blocked my exit. Get out of my way, I said, fists clenched. This is what you wanted all along, he replied. His voice was always hushed and flat, his emotions as blank and indecipherable as his appearance. No, it isn't, I urged. Why else would you have grabbed the knife? He asked. I, I didn't. You did. I felt sweat beating on my forehead. Why else would you have followed them? I... I heard a scream. Did you really think that other boy was a threat? The scream. Brooke! I turned back to the body. Punctured. Broken. Lifeless. It would not toss its hair again and catch the moonlight. Do what you came here to do, Mr. Monster whispered. No, I replied without turning to face him. Kill them, he urged. No, I felt heat welling inside me again. Kill them, he repeated. No, sweat dripped into my eye. Kill them, he hissed. I closed my eyes and shouted back, No! It was suddenly calm. There was nothing but darkness and silence around me. Then, What the fuck? A voice asked. I opened my eyes. My vision was blurry as my eyes adjusted. I was no longer in the prep room. I was standing on the shore of the river behind my house, and a guy I hated was having sex with a girl who'd always shown me kindness. Oh my god! I heard Rob shout. Brooke screamed. This was... This time, there was absolutely no mistaking the fear. I turned, and I ran. I ran as fast as I could up the slope along the river. Who the fuck are you, you fucking perv? Rob shouted after me. I didn't turn around. I just ran forward. I didn't want them to see that it was me. As I ran into the trees, I heard Rob and Brooke continue to shout. I focused on their voices. They were angry. They were scared. They were confused. But they were alive. I broke a rule tonight. My first rule. I'd given in to what I've worked so hard to hold back. But when faced with that opportunity to act on it, I didn't. That means something, right? I thought as I ran. Whatever you say, Mr. Monster replied. The end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From episode 39, Marcus writes Stranger Things, based on the television series created by the Duffer Brothers. Of course Mike would say this was Lucas's fault. He hadn't liked Lucas's plan, but they had decided to roll for it like men, and Lucas had scored higher on initiative, so that was that. They were going to break <laughs> into the facility. Or at least, that had been the plan until the Earth split open and decided to swallow Dustin whole, which, as far as Lucas was concerned, was not his fault. I can't believe you let this happen, Mike said. It's not my fault, Lucas protested. You were the party leader. And I still am, Lucas said. It's not my fault our bike lights all went out at once, and I certainly didn't make a giant hole in the ground. As a matter of fact, that sounds a lot like the work of your weirdo girlfriend. Leave her out of this, Mike said, and he grabbed Lucas's jacket. 
Even in the moonlight, Lucas could tell his friend was stark red. Or what, you'll try to beat me up while we let Dustin bleed to death? Mike stared at Lucas for a moment. Then he let go of his jacket and walked back over to the weirdo. As he stepped away, <laughs> Lucas thought he heard something that sounded a lot like, I wouldn't just try. Lucas didn't have time for Mike's stewing. He, pushed a fla- he pulled a flashlight out of his backpack and turned it on. Well, he flicked the switch. The light refused to turn on. Mike! Lucas yelled. Any luck with your flashlight? Mike hadn't even taken his flashlight out yet. He'd just been standing there talking to the shaved-headed freak. But when he did try his flashlight, it fared no better than Lucas's. They tried the alternate batteries they'd brought along, but Lucas didn't have much hope for those, even before his suspicions were confirmed. They tested all the flashlights before they left. This was something different. Fortunately, Lucas still had the road flares he'd swiped out of the chief's car when they were doing the first sweep for Will a few weeks back. He popped off the plastic cap at the end of the flare and struck it to life. The flare flickered a few times, as if wrestling with whether it should be allowed, but its light won out. He handed another flare to Mike, who handed it to the weirdo and refused to do anything until Lucas gave him another one. When all three of them were holding spewing sticks of red light, they decided to get closer a closer look at the hole. It was about 15 feet across, and a perfect circle, or close enough to one that it creeped Lucas out regardless. He was certain he had rode right over that spot before their lights had given out, and they heard Dustin yell. There was no way the hole had been there all along. And to make matters worse, it had to be huge. This orientation of losing the lights and hearing the scream made it hard to be sure, but Lucas had a terrible feeling that the yell had given out before they heard the crash of Dustin's bike at the bottom of the hole. Now, with his flare angled down into the gap, Lucas knew he must be right. He couldn't see the bottom, and Dustin still didn't respond to their shouts down to him. We've got to go for help, Mike said. We are help, Lucas said. What are we going to do? We might be able to get down there with the things in our pack, but we both know Dustin's never been able to climb the rope in gym class, and we don't (laughs) even know if he's still conscious. He's breathing. He'll be awake soon, the weirdo said. Lucas jumped. He had forgotten she was there as he was arguing with his friend. It had been nice to forget. And how the hell do you know that? How can you tell it's night? She asked with that cock of her head that Lucas found so irritating. What is that supposed to mean? Lucas asked. But she was done playing. Instead, she walked around the edge of the hole, placing one foot in front of the other in a toe-to-toe line, oblivious to all the world. We need to go for help now, Mike said. I can't lose another friend. Funny, Lucas said. I wasn't sure we still counted after Baldy showed up. For a minute, Lucas thought Mm. Mike was going to hit him. He would have welcomed it to know that his friend still cared. But the minute passed and Mike said, We can argue about Eleven later. Right now we have to make sure Dustin doesn't die like Will is not dead, Lucas said. A little louder than he intended. Fine, what I mean is... How do we know this isn't exactly what happened to Will? I swear, Mike, that hole wasn't there when we first rode by. I'm party leader, remember? I would have seen it. Dustin was right behind me, and now he's down there. Who's to say if we leave this hole, it won't just close up on him? I don't know. We are running out of time. I don't care what Eleven says. I think he's in danger. Did you just call her Eleven? Mike laughed. But in a flash, his grin was replaced with panic. His eyes began to dart desperately around him. Eleven! he shouted. Lucas looked around and it was clear that the weirdo was gone. Had she run away? But no, 
When he looked down the hole, he could see a tiny prick of red light, just barely visible below. They hadn't heard a sound. She couldn't have fallen in, could she? Grab the rope, Mike shouted. I'm going in after her. After them, you mean, Lucas said, annoyed that Mike was only taking his side now that the weirdo was in danger, like they hadn't grown up with Dustin and his dumb, toothless face. Mike ignored him and grabbed Lucas's backpack. He found the rope they had brought along and grabbed it firmly by one end, tossing the other side into the hole. As soon as I'm down there, Mike said, I need you to run for someone. If we tie off the rope, I should be able to climb back up, even if Eleven needs a little help. What about Dustin? Lucas said. He tried to keep the accusation out of his voice now that Mike was finally being proactive. That's why we need you to get help. You know, Eleven, she's weird. She's probably okay. But if Dustin's really hurt, we can't move him. Lucas felt a swell of respect for his friend, though he'd never admit it. But this thought was overcome immediately with panic, as without warning, the rope in Mike's hands burst into flames. Mike screamed and dropped the rope, but it didn't fall down into the pit. It simply disintegrated on the spot. What the hell was that? Lucas said. He looked from the flare in his hand to the one Mike had left on the ground when he retrieved the rope, but neither seemed a likely cause of ignition. This was wholly unnatural. As if in confirmation, a loud groaning sound came from below their feet, and Lucas was convinced the hole looked smaller. Mike was bent over and Lucas could see tears down his face, tinted red in the light of his flare. Let me see those hands, Lucas said. And he regretted it immediately. As Mike forced open his clenched fists, Lucas saw a grisly black and red crosswork of burns. This red oozed and had nothing to do with the flare. Well, Lucas said, that settles it. You need to go back into town right now. You need a doctor, so I guess I'm the one staying here. Like hell, Mike said, but his voice was weak. Look, we could roll for it, Lucas said. I don't think you could even hold the die. I would hit you if it wouldn't hurt so much, Mike said, smiling through the tears. But I'm not going anywhere. I was afraid you might say that, Lucas said. Then he did the stupidest thing he's ever done in his life. Without a moment's hesitation, he kicked the backpack into the hole and jumped in after it. For the first few <laughs> seconds, he could hear Mike screaming after him. But then the rock around him illuminated in the flare he had dropped as he leapt, gave way to a bright green light. It was so powerful that Lucas could see it even after he closed his eyes. He wouldn't be surprised if it shot up high enough to light up all of Hawkins and cause the people all around to build mountains out of their mashed potatoes. <laughs> then, with a shock, the light was gone, and Mike opened his eyes to find himself sitting at the bottom of the hole, not broken in a heap, but sitting. Though... On second thought, he wasn't sure he was at the bottom. He could be anywhere. He couldn't see a thing, and the flare appeared to have gone out, if it was even around. Dustin, he said, noticing his voice came out soft despite his best efforts. He felt his hands shaking. He's not here, came a light voice that was all too familiar. The beam from Lucas's own flashlight confirmed his worst fear. The crazed girl was smiling at him without a scratch on her holding the stolen flashlight in one hand and holding out the other to help Lucas up. Lucas didn't take her hand, but instead pushed himself to his feet. His hands stopped shaking as he balled them into fists. What did you do to him, you freak? He stepped towards her, pulling himself up to his full height, though it didn't seem to concern her. She simply stepped back as he advanced. He glanced down and found his backpack on the floor. He thought he could overpower her, 
he was a foot and a half taller, or half a foot taller. But with her weirdness, he'd much prefer if he had... That won't do, she said, shaking her head. What? You're thinking about grabbing this, she said. And with a shock of realization, Lucas saw the pocket knife he kept in his backpack floating in the air in front of him. Lucas stumbled back. (laughs) Though the blade remained closed, he knew she could open it. Now, I wasn't... Yes, you were. We don't have time for that. I told you Dustin isn't here, and to answer your earlier question, I didn't do anything to him. Then where is he? Lucas said defiantly. That's harder. They never really understood the Viatori at the facility. Lucas must have looked as dumb as he felt, because she continued, Oh, right. We're calling him the Demigorgon. How he travels, (laughs) where he goes between worlds, what fills the vacuums he creates. Regardless, I don't think we have much time. This fissure won't be here for long. We have to find Dustin. Why? Lucas asked. Trying his best to look into the weirdo's eyes, and find some truth beneath her crazy. (laughs) She paused, and he took the opportunity to grab the knife out of the air, but he didn't open it. You'll laugh, she said at last. That was not what he was expecting. Why would I laugh? Because you did last time, but I wasn't sure, and I'm still not sure that I am right now. Lucas tried to think of a situation they had been in that somehow had been anything like being caught in the bottom of a pit with the weirdo, but he couldn't come anywhere close. The girl proceeded through his silence. When we first met, you laughed when I asked, What are friends? And now I think I know, but I'm not sure. I want to find him because I believe friends are the people who go looking when we're gone. Isn't that why you came down to find Dustin? Lucas's loose fingers slipped apart and the knife fell. All thoughts of accusing her for the hole or the flaming rope or even the green light left him, replaced by an intense feeling of shame. He hoped she didn't notice the sweat that began to run down his forehead. No, Eleven, he said as his voice returned to him, the lie burning hot in his ungrateful throat. That's why I came down to find Dustin and you. The end. From episode 40, Eric Wright's Scream, based on the film written by Kevin Williamson and directed by Wes Craven. The shrill scream can be heard from the outside, rising and falling through several discrete tones before devolving into an incongruous babble of harmonic gargling. He listens with rapt interest as the digital tones make way for a static hiss as the loud modem connects with the server. Had this been a weeknight, He may have assumed the sound was an indication that Mrs. Prescott was sending some electronic mail, or that Mr. Prescott was looking up some multi-kilobyte scans from the latest issues of Playboy. (laughs) This is Saturday night, however, which means that Mr. and Mrs. Prescott are spending the evening with their eccentric friends, the Castavets, leaving Sydney home alone. (laughs) It's the perfect time to strike. And that's why Billy's here. He edges closer to the large picture window, being sure to stay out of the bright yellow glow of the nearby street lamp. Luckily, the large oak tree out front is casting long shadows against the house, hiding Billy's tall, black-clad form. He peers inside, and there she is, sitting in the computer chair, back to the window, eyes on the bright monitor, oblivious to his presence. The hairs on the back of his neck stand up for a moment. He's only 15 feet from her, but she doesn't know he's there. There's a thrill to it, 
and Billy takes a deep breath to steady himself and smells the rubbery plastic of the mask. He wishes he could take it off and breathe fresh air, but keeping his face hidden is a necessary precaution. The light from the street lamp is occluded for a moment, and Billy spins, only managing to see the swish of a black cloak as a figure passes by. Could it be him, he wonders? A hot fear rising within him like an elevator filled with blood. <laughs> Whoever it is, they seem to be heading up the driveway towards the front of the house, around the corner from the very place that Billy now stands. He grips the knife hard in his right hand, and begins moving slowly towards the corner of the house, passing cautiously in front of the large window. There is a sharp knock, which sounds like a gunshot in the silence of the quiet suburban neighborhood, and Billy freezes at the center of the picture window. He watches Sydney as she spins in her seat, attention drawn by the knock at the door, but she doesn't go to answer it. She seems to be on edge, frightened. There's another knock. Billy is holding his breath, but doesn't realize it until Sydney turns to her left and sees him standing there just outside her window, white ghost mask over his face and brandishing a 12-inch kitchen knife. She screams and pushes herself wildly to her feet, knocking over the office chair as she does so. Billy lets out his breath and swears, stumbling backwards and running towards the back of the house in a blind panic. He loses sight of Sydney, but he can hear her running through the house to get away from him. Away from Ghostface. He imagines what she must be thinking in this moment. One stranger knocking at her door in the middle of the night, another watching her from outside. She must be terrified, but at least she doesn't know that it's Billy under the mask. She doesn't, right? He makes it to the backyard just as Sydney reaches the kitchen, which he can see through the glass of the patio door. She grabs the phone off the hook and puts it to her ear, perhaps making to call the police. But a dismayed look crosses her face, and she lets the receiver drop. Billy wonders if there's something wrong with the phone for a moment, but then it clicks. The internet is on the same phone line. <laughs> Nobody will be calling this house until the computer is disconnected. A loud thud and the sound of breaking glass reaches Billy's ears, causing him to jump and drop the knife into the dewy grass. Sydney also hears it, and she darts out of view of the patio window, escaping into the dark recesses of the house, the phone's receiver swinging by its twisted cord. Billy quickly recovers the knife and jogs up to the patio door, peers inside, but then immediately jumps back. There, walking calmly into the kitchen, is Billy's double. Black cloak, contorted white face, and a large kitchen knife. It's ghost face, and he's come to kill Billy's girlfriend. His first instinct is to run, like he did when Sydney saw him, but it's apparent that ghost face hasn't spotted him yet. The light in the kitchen is bright enough to render Billy invisible out in the dark backyard. The killer scans the kitchen, ghastly blank eyes roving this way and that. Black eyes. The devil's eyes. Fear grips him. He's sweating, and he's breathing as if he's just run a marathon, but Ghostface walks out of the kitchen, tracing Sydney's steps. Though the door is closed, Billy can distinctly hear Ghostface say, Here, kitty, kitty, as he prowls into the next room. Sydney. The thought of his girl snaps Billy out of it. He came here for a reason, after all. He's not wearing the same disguise as the killer just to be cute. He's here to protect the woman he loves. <sighs> 
He takes a deep breath and silently opens the patio door, stepping into the bright yellow light of the kitchen. Leaving the door open behind him, he listens to the deathly quiet of the house for a long moment and ascertains that Ghostface is currently walking up the creeping stairs towards the second level. Perfect. First things first, Billy has to get the phones working again. After confirming the garbled hiss of the internet coming through the dangling phone receiver, he rushes out of the kitchen and into the living room, noting the shards of glass at the nearby front door where Ghostface muscled his way in. He approaches the glowing space-age hulk of the 19-inch CRT computer display, <laughs> a strange website occupying all of the monitor's real estate. The pattern of light and dark squares and the rudimentary representations of chess pieces on screen tells him that Sidney had just begun a game with a friend online. A text box labeled Tatum BFF appears in the center of the screen, and Billy watches as a message from Sidney's best friend is typed out letter by letter. It reads, Hey Sids, your turn. Get your head out of the J&B and play. The bottle of Mr. Prescott's J&B Canadian whiskey <laughs> is indeed sitting there to the left of the keyboard, cap lying next to the bottle as if Sidney had been taken poles. Setting the knife down on the desk, he quickly replies to Tatum's message saying, Send help. Killer in the house. He hits return, but a large hourglass icon appears over the cursor and nothing more happens. <laughs> Billy wiggles the mouse, but it isn't responding to his touch. He physically shakes the monitor. Nothing. Frustration rises inside him. He tries hitting the power button on the massive off-white computer tower, but there's absolutely no response. <laughs> he knows that if he can't get help via Tatum, at very least, he needs to, the, to sever the computer's internet connection so that he can use the phone to call the police. Without another thought, he grabs the bottle of JMB and pours the contents into the computer's access panel, sending up sparks and shutting down the computer with a small puff of smoke. <laughs> Cheating bitch, he says under his breath. <laughs> Satisfied, he picks up the knife and turns to head back towards the kitchen and the telephone within. But it's too late. Standing a mere ten feet away, backlit by the light of the kitchen, is the ghost-faced killer, who immediately lunges towards him, large knife thrust forward. Time slows for a moment, and Billy can't help but be disappointed by the fact that his plan had apparently not worked at all. <laughs> by dressing as, a, as the killer's twin, he was hoping to confuse Ghostface into thinking that maybe he was on his side, as if to say, See? We're all knife murderers here. <laughs> it relied on his hypothesis that out of all the kids that had been dressing up as the killer in the weeks leading up to Halloween, none of them had yet ended up dead. It seemed like a suit of armor that would protect him and confuse Ghostface long enough to let Sidney get away safely. So much for that idea. All thought of self-preservation flees him in this moment, and Billy comes back to the present with a firm grip on his knife and a fire in his belly. He screams a loud war cry and meets the killer in the middle of the living room, burying his blade deep into Ghostface's taut, surprisingly small frame. <sighs> Billy's war cry turns into a scream of agony as Ghostface's blade also finds its mark deep in his gut. The pain is like a massive weight that has suddenly planted itself on his stomach, rendering him motionless. He falters, loses his grip on his knife, and tumbles to the ground, clutching at his hot, gaping wound. He's suddenly aware of another scream, this one high-pitched and feminine. 
And although Billy can't see her in this moment, he imagines that she has walked into the room to find two masked murderers collapsing in a bloody pile in the center of her living room. But no, the scream is too close, as if right on top of him. Panic hits him harder than a sledgehammer to the head, and he's now struggling to breathe. Through the exertion and pain, he manages to pull off his ghost mace, ma- he manages to pull off his ghost mask and gasps at the fresh air. A soft, muffled voice reaches his ears. Billy? She says. You're the killer? No. Not that. Don't let it be true, he pleads to himself. Unable to speak, Billy reaches over to the black-clad form lying next to him on the carpet and tugs at the white mask. It pulls away easily, and he drops it in shock as his eyes meet those of Sidney Prescott. It doesn't make any sense, and his mind whirs as he tries to justify what his girlfriend, why his girlfriend would be dressed like Ghostface. But then it all suddenly makes too much sense. He manages to say, trying to trick the killer. He coughs and feels the blood soaking into the shag around him. You too? She gasps for breath and responds, Yeah, he (coughs) doesn't kill his own kind. He nods at this. Then after a moment, he smirks. We're all knife murderers here, (laughs) he says. She laughs. Then a deep voice draws their attention to the third ghost face standing in the door to the kitchen. You guys are weird, (laughs) he says simply, then walks out the patio door and into the night. The end. (laughs) From episode 41, Andrew writes Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, parts 1 and 2, based on the play script written by Jack Thorne. Part 1. The Red Letter Day. Oh. Bloody hell. Delphi (laughs) cursed. Potter's report was not what she wanted to hear. You certain you checked the entire east side? Yes, Delphi, Potter affirmed with an exasperated sigh that only frustrated her more. We walked the east end of the high street up and down. Honeydukes, Zonkos, there was no sign of him. (laughs) Perhaps he didn't come on this visit. Malfoy mused softly. The white-haired boy was seated on the dusty floor across the room, shivering. He had his knees pulled to his chest, as if trying to make himself as small as possible. Perhaps he took ill? He added. Delphi groaned and began to pace the room, which helped to work to both work off her frustration and keep her warm. Malfoy could have been right. She had no evidence to be certain that her cousin attempt- attended this particular Hogsmeade visit in the February of 1992. <laughs> However, hmm. after several failed attempts to make contact between multiple times and locations, she did believe such a trip would be the best opportunity. How about we go to the Three Broomsticks? Potter suggested. We can grab some butter beers and wait for him. He's bound to turn up. Everybody goes there. I second that idea, Malfoy sh- added with a shiver. This place is creepy. And drafty. (laughs) It's not that creepy, Scorpius, Potter disputed. It's just old. My dad said people thought it was haunted back in his day. People would hear screams and howls coming from inside. It just turned out to be Remus Lupin, my dad's werewolf friend. He'd come here once a month to transform. (laughs) So you're saying a werewolf might stop by later? Malfoy asked. Lovely, I feel much better. 
No, Scorpius, that was... <laughs> Boys! Delphi shouted, getting their attention. She had stopped pacing and now stood between them in the room. Can we shut it about werewolves and get back to something important? Their short attention spans frequently reminded her of their age. The same her cousin would be around this time. I made a suggestion, Potter said, <laughs> raising his hands apologetically. We can go to the Three Broomsticks and drink butterbeer, Delphi asked sharply, throwing her arms up. Is that the real reason you two ran away from school? Why even go back in time, then? Delphi, we spent all morning looking for him, Potter stated. We didn't see him. It's not a large village. He probably isn't here. We could have missed him, she replied firmly. There are a lot of kids in black robes out there. But you charmed those photographs of him to wave at us if he was nearby, and mine never Ooh. did. Hmm. Neither did mine, Malfoy added softly. Good idea, though. So maybe that charm isn't as powerful as I'd hoped, Delphi said, producing a, f producing a photo of her cousin from her jacket pocket. She didn't know why she got it out. She'd looked at it enough to memorize every detail. In the photo, he stood up straight and tall. In his left arm, he cradled a large trophy. She believed it was for some kind of summer Quidditch program, while his right was wrapped around the shoulders of his father, her uncle, Amos. The older man looked absolutely giddy, with a grin extended from ear to ear. Her cousin's smile was of a different kind. Softer, warmer, more humble. Growing up, Delphi had heard countless stories from her uncle of her cousin's accomplishments. Anytime she'd accomplished something herself, Amos would relate it back to something her cousin did. In her uncle's mind, his son was a winner. A hero. Hell, a bloody titan, she thought. <laughs> even Albus Dumbledore said even Albus Dumbledore said so himself at the end, Amos would recount. Delphi could see that person in the photograph. The winner, the hero. Now she had the chance to meet him. The one to whom she'd com been compared all her life. She was ready to be impressed. She turned to Potter. We're going back out. Potter deflated and shook his head. There are other opportunities, Delphi, he pleaded. We have the time, Turner. Let's try a different time. Preferably warmer? <laughs> Malfoy added with a hint of a smile. Enough, she shouted, causing the boys to jump. It surprised her a little, too, but she went with it. We've tried other times, and we failed every time. I'm going out there to do what we came here to do. I'm going to find him. She started toward the door of the room. But Delphi, Potter began. No, she said as she shouldered past him. Just go enjoy your butter beer. She didn't turn around to see their reactions to that last barb. She didn't care. They didn't have the commitment, nor the connection to see this task through. She saw that now. This was hers to complete. She took a left out of the room and started stomping down the stairs. She was only three steps from the bottom when she stomped a bit too hard, and the rotten board under her boot buckled completely. She fell forward, yelping with surprise. Instinctively, she drew her wand and waved it in a circular motion. Reducto momentum, she shouted, <laughs> and her fall slowed. The spell allowed her the time to reposition herself midair and come to a light stop on her feet on the bottom landing. She groaned in frustration and gave her wand a slow twirl, allowing her body to move at a regular speed again. She cursed and pounded her fist against the wall. She realized then that she still clenched the photo of her cousin and uncle in her hand. It had been crumpled by her grip. Then she saw the figure. A man stood a few meters to her right, framed by the open front door. He was silhouetted by the daylight, wand drawn. 
Delphi reacted. Expelliarmus, she shouted, <laughs> sending her wand, opponent's wand flipping into the air. She immediately followed up with her next move. Accio wand. The loose wand zipped through the air toward her. She dropped the crumpled photograph and caught the wand, turning it on its owner. It was Cedric. She froze at the sight of him. For a second, she forgot where she was and considered the possibility that this place may actually be haunted with the spirit of her fallen cousin. Hmm. Then her wits returned. She was in the past, nearly three decades before her own time. This wasn't a specter. This wasn't a photograph. This was reality no matter how unreal. She considered him, eyes wide in surprise, hands up in surrender, mouth agape. Please, he said with a shiver. Delphi took a deep breath, trying to relax. Do something, she thought. Say something. Sorry, mate, she said, throwing, <laughs> lowering both wands. You frightened me is all. I, uh, frightened you, he asked, followed by a laugh of discomfort. He didn't relax his stance. I'm about to bloody fate. A slight smile curled on Delphi's lips. Please don't, she said. I'd rather avoid an awkward conversation with one of your professors. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw Potter and Malfoy poking their heads out of the door upstairs. She sent a quick glare in their direction, filled with a crack of her neck. They retreated into the room. She turned back to Cedric, who remained frozen in fear. Don't worry. She assured him, stowing her wand inside her jacket and presenting his. I mean you no harm. She watched as Cedric glanced from her to his wand and back, clearly still frightened to proceed. Delphi groaned and walked forward. Just take your wand, mate, she said, slapping it into his right hand. This caused him to flinch, but then he closed his hand around the wand. Uh, the thanks, he struggled to say, studying her now that they were close. His eyes lingered a tad too long for her liking. Is there a problem? She asked. No, no, he said, looking downward and taking a step back. I'm sorry, I just... I've never... Never what? She asked. Well, um... Your, uh... Hair is just a bit different, he managed to say. <laughs> she smirked at this and remembered that her faded purple hair, shaved on the one side, eyebrow piercings, and bleached gen denim jacket might be striking to this clean-cut kid from 1992. She usually cast a spell to veil, veil her appearance. Then she noted how he continued to look at her, and felt, a, and felt her smirk wane. It was the same kind of doe-eyed look she'd been getting off and on from Potter. Only this kid is your cousin, she thought. Ooh. Oh, bloody hell, she cursed, turning and walking away. <laughs> oh dear, she heard Cedric say. Did I offend you? I'm terribly sorry if I did. <sighs> what are you doing in here, kid? She asked as she walked into the conservatory at the rear of the house where dead vines clung to the broken glass of the outer walls. She turned as Cedric entered the room. He stepped on a shard of glass on the floor, which caused him to stop and grimace. Oh dear, he said with worry in his voice, as if further shattering the already shattered glass were some kind of vandalism. Well, she prodded with a challenging look. Well, what? he asked. What are you doing here? she repeated. Oh, he acknowledged before hesitating. His expression grew grim. He hung his head and crossed his arms. It's... it's stupid. I'm sure it is, she replied. <laughs> he paused before answering, taking a long moment to look at everything around the room except her. I, I was, uh... dared. My mates dared me. This, this place is supposedly haunted. The, the most haunted house in Britain, they say. 
do they? She asked, feigning ignorance. Cedric cocked his head at this. You mean you don't know? She shrugged in return. Should I? Well, do you live around here? No. Oh. Where do you, uh, where are you from? She thought for a moment if she should tell him. She knew there were certain things she shouldn't, but this didn't seem like one of them. She'd keep it vague, anyway. London, she said. Me too, he exclaimed, perking <laughs> up. Great, you and a few others, she said dryly. <laughs> and she watched him clench his teeth and slump his shoulders at this, as if only now struck by how uncool he was being. He was clearly a few ways, excuse me, he was clearly a few years away from being the wit and charmer some had claimed him to be. Delphi relaxed and started wandering around the windowed room. So, let me get this right. You're breaking into an allegedly haunted house in the middle of the day to prove to your friends how brave you are? She punctuated this by throwing him a wry smile. Cedric tensed. Yeah, he said, trailing off and averting his gaze to the dirty panes of the ceiling above. Delphi absently snapped a dry lock of vine and twisted it between her fingers. Is that important to you? She asked. He turned back to her. What's that? Is it important to you that your friends know you're brave? Cedric shrugged. I suppose. That's it? Delphi asked, throwing him a judging glance. You suppose? I, I mean, I guess. You guess! Delphi stopped pacing. <laughs> I don't know, Cedric exclaimed. What do you want me to say? I want you to tell me what you bloody think, you lunk. I don't really think... Uh, you don't really think, huh? Well, that's become obvious. Wait now, hold on. I can think. Can you now? Well, you're fooling me. Just stop, Cedric shouted, holding his hands up. Please, no more. I don't want this. Delphi sighed and tossed the dry piece of vine to the floor. You're just one of those boring good boys who always does as he's told. The world, the words came quickly, without a moment's thought, and more coldly than she had intended. Cedric deflated. His arms sunk back to his sides, sides, and his eyes went to the floor. Sorry, Delphi said, realizing how much of a mess she'd made of this interaction. The whole reason that they'd gone to all the trouble. Maybe they could just try another time, as Potter suggested. Maybe I should go, she said. You can just tell your friends you saw a ghost. Cedric was still looking at the floor. Delphi sighed and walked past him to the conservatory door. Wait. She stopped and turned around. Cedric hadn't moved and he didn't look at her as he continued to speak. I haven't been entirely honest, I'm afraid. He sighed deeply. You see, I'm a chaser for my house Quidditch team. It's my first year on the team, not in school. I tried out every year before, but I never made the cut. I remember writing my dad afterward. Each time I failed, he'd, um, he'd send me, uh, a howler. Delphi felt, felt her stomach hmm. sink. Cedric continued. They'd come in the morning post when I was at breakfast in the Great Hall. I'd be sitting with my friends, and suddenly an owl would drop that terrible red envelope in front of me. In front of my friends. Cedric sniffed and quickly wiped his face. 
As he continued, his voice began to crack. I didn't even... I didn't even want to be on the bloody... No, no, that's not it. I love Quidditch, but... But he made me not want to. Cedric's eyes were now full of tears. Delphi felt her own tears run down her face. She stepped forward slowly and embraced her cousin. He accepted it, wrapping his arms lightly around her in return. He weeped quietly on her shoulder for a while. Even though they just met, she didn't feel uncomfortable being there. It felt as if she'd always been there for him. You can ask questions, Delphi said softly, and you can say no. It's hard, but... She trailed off and leaned back, meeting the boy's tear-filled eyes. She smiled and rubbed his shoulders. Can you do that? Cedric wiped his eyes and nodded. Yes. He then reached into his robes and produced a red letter. Delphi felt the anger well inside her at the sight of it. But she also realized something. You didn't come here in here on a dare, she said. Cedric shook his head. She briefly wondered what this one was for, and whether she'd ever felt so angry at an inanimate object. Cedric then dropped the letter on the floor, retrieved his wand, and pointed it at the letter. Incendio, he whispered, and the letter went up in a quick blaze until it was nothing but ash. They both stared at it for a moment, neither speaking. Delphi then glanced up at Cedric, who didn't meet her eyes. He continued to stare at the ash. It was clear to Delphi that plenty of thoughts were darting through his mind, so she turned to leave. Wait, Cedric said. Delphi turned back to him. His eyes were red but clear of tears. Who are you? he asked. What are you doing in here? Delphi smiled warmly at her little older cousin. You see, Cedric, she began, now you're starting to ask the right bloody questions. And with that, she apparated away. End of part one. (gasps) Part two, Above the Broomstick Shop. Upon their return, the present didn't seem much different from how they'd left it. Delphi and her young companion spent the train ride back to London scoring the profit for all the most current events, but everything seemed in place. Lord Voldemort had been defeated, Hermione Weasley Granger was Minister of Magic, and the English had recently won their third consecutive Quidditch World Cup. (laughs) After reading the paper front to back twice, Delphi went to the dining car to ask a few witches and wizards an important question. Do you know Cedric Diggory? Nobody did, though one which knew her uncle, Amos. Poor man, she remarked without further explanation. Poor man indeed, Delphi thought with a pang of anger. The tear-filled eyes and labored words of her cousin were still fresh in her mind. Nothing seemed changed about the present, except Delphi's thoughts on her uncle. Amos Diggory was catatonic. His wife... Delphi's aunt had positioned his wheelchair to face a window looking out onto the park below. When Delphi first entered her uncle's study, he did not turn to see her. When she said his name, he did not reply. When she touched his shoulder, he did not react. 
Delphi knelt down beside him. She noticed how his eyes would move, but not in her direction. They'd only drift from the window to the floor and back. This was not the state in which she'd left him. Amos had been weak of body, but he'd been able to supplement that with magic. The Diggory home had always been alive with magic, a perpetual cycle of spells anticipating the Diggory's every need, even some they didn't expect. Now the house was still, and dark, and quiet. As much as she'd wanted to, Delphi couldn't bring herself to confront her uncle with the anger she'd been harboring. What good will it do? She thought, rising to her feet and wandering to Amos's desk. She had often helped her uncle sort his mail. Despite magical assistance, he was dreadfully unorganized when it came to his desk. The pile of letters she found there was a familiar sight, but then she saw the picture frame. It had been placed face down on the desk, and a few letters lay atop it, not quite masking it completely from view. She pushed the letters aside, picked up the frame, and looked at the picture within. She gasped. Her heart began to pound. Albus! Scorpius! She yelled. The boys appeared at the door to the study. They'd been waiting outside. What is it? Potter asked. Delphi presented the picture to them. More changed than we thought, she replied. Before they'd gone back in time, ownership of broomsticks on Diagon Alley had been in a constant state of, state of flux. Delphi frequented the place to window shop, and whoever the current owner was would give her a hard time for not buying anything. She'd curbed their frustrations by purchasing handle polish or replacement twigs for her vintage Nimbus 5000. <laughs> Even after countless visits, she'd never been up to the flat above the shop, where the owners often lived. She'd never been friendly enough with any of them to be invited up for tea. Now, after returning from the past, she was confident this owner would be pleased to have her calling albeit unannounced. As she knocked on the flat's door, Delphi's thoughts vacillated between excitement and panic. She wondered if it was a mistake to tell Potter and Malfoy to stay behind. Soon she heard footsteps approaching on the other side of the door. Don't mess this up, don't mess this up, she thought on repeat. Then the door opened, and there he was. Again. Cedric Diggory. Ha! <laughs> Delphi had been around magic her entire life. She'd seen some of the most power wiz powerful wizards of her time perform feats of stunning brilliance. But nothing compared to the first fleeting instant she looked upon her full-grown cousin in that doorway. Alive. But that immediate wonder waned when she had a moment to consider him. The young man she'd seen in the past and in photographs had, was barely recognizable. This Cedric's eyes had bags underneath them. His face was unshaven. The England Quidditch World Cup Champions 2016 shirt he wore fits snugly around his, across his round belly. He seemed tired, and not just the kind of tired one feels after a full day's work. It took a moment of recognition to peer on Cedric's face. When it did, he too seemed a little stunned to see her. Delphi? He asked. He ne she never thought she'd hear his name out of his mouth. She opened her own mouth to reply, but words didn't come. All she could do was nod. Huh, Cedric began. I hardly recognize you, cuz. You changed your hair so much. <laughs> Delphi absolutely ran a hand through her hair. <laughs> she chuckled with a shrug. Yeah, you know me. 
As she said it, she wondered how well he really did know her. Unlike their meeting in the past, Cedric had the upper hand here. She didn't have the knowledge of their shared past. Yeah, Cedric affirmed, trailing off. He seemed to be wrapping his mind around this interaction as well. He shook his head. Bloody hell, I'm sorry, please, come in. As she entered and looked around, she was quickly struck by how similar the cozy flat reminded her of somewhere else she'd been recently. Her uncle's study. The flat was dark and fairly empty, save for basic furniture. A couch, a chair, a simple dining room set. Delphi noted that there were no pictures on the walls or counters. On the dining table, Cedric had a broom laid out, which it seemed he'd been working on. Do you know what it is? Cedric asked. Sure, Delphi replied without hesitation. A clean sweep 13. You always make it look so easy, Cedric said, smiling a bit and shaking his head. Delphi shrugged. You can tell by the nose, she explained. The 13s is distinct among the clean sweep series. Too blocky for my taste, not a great racer. <laughs> Agreed, Cedric stated. I'm not too fond of it either. Why are you fixing it then? She asked. That thing's ancient. And that's what makes it worth fixing, he replied. Vintage is in, cuz. Folks indulging their nostalgia, you should know that as well as anyone. How's that Nimbus holding up? <laughs> Fine, she said. The binding probably needs to be replaced, but who's got the coin for that? He finished. She turned for him, turned to him, unable to hide the surprise on her face. He chuckled. What? Is the same excuse you always use? Delphi suddenly realized how easy she'd fallen into conversation with him. Cedric made her comfortable, like close family would. Again, she thought of the magic behind the situation and how powerful it must be. Would she get new memories? Would it change her? Or would she always remember the world that was? The world without Cedric Diggory in it? Then she thought of her uncle. So... If you aren't here about your broom... What brings you here? Cedric asked, as if segueing off her own thoughts. She realized the small talk portion of the conversation was over and felt her gut tighten. Here we go, she thought, taking a deep breath. Cedric, she began, I'm here because, um, because of Uncle Amos. Any warmth that had been on Cedric's face evaporated. His tired eyes darkened as his brow furrowed. What about him? He asked pointedly. Delphi instantly began to second-guess going through this, through with this, but the cat was out of the bag. He, uh... He's not doing so. Not my problem, Cedric interjected. Whatever it is. Why? The question slipped out before Delphi could help herself. Cedric's pain regarding the subject was obvious. She could see how he tensed as she said it. Oh, you're making a mess of this again, she thought. Why what? Cedric challenged. Delphi hesitated. Every impulse told her not to push. But then she thought of the boy she'd met in Hogsmeade and what she'd told him. Why won't you go to him? Delphi asked. Cedric didn't respond so quickly this time. He studied her. She wasn't sure what to make of it, but then he spoke. You should know, he stated, adopting a more serious tone. Keep going, she urged herself. Cedric, if I knew, I wouldn't be asking. 
He let out a sarcastic laugh and shook his head. That's really how you're going to play this? Play what? Delphi asked. She really had no idea what he was on about. Cedric stared at her expectantly for a moment, sighed, and then turned and stomped over to the flat's meager kitchen. There, he opened a drawer and removed what looked like a small piece of paper. He looked at it a moment and then held it out towards Delphi. Look, he ordered. The darkness in his voice worried her. Even so, Delphi walked up slowly and took the paper from Cedric's hand. It was an old photograph. She recognized it immediately. She had looked at it enough to memorize every detail. Her Uncle Amos, his ridiculous grin, the impressive trophy, and her youthful cousin, Cedric. The winner. The hero. The bloody titan. She looked up to her full-grown cousin standing before her, tired, angry, broken. That trophy in the photo, he began. I remember the tournament it's from. My team didn't win. Oh no, Delphi thought. What have I done? Cedric, she began, you just got back, didn't you? He asked heatedly. <laughs> Delphi's vision began to blur its tears welled in her eyes. Cedric, I, your hair is the same as it was that day, and it's always different. I recognize you. Please, why were you there? Said, what did you do, Delphi? He pressed, taking a step forward. What did you do to my life? I can't tell you, Delphi shouted as tears ran down her face. I can't. Cedric backed away and pounded a fist on a cupboard in frustration. The unseen dishes inside rattled from the impact. Delphi, he began, his, so his voice soft and tense. You went back and messed with my life. I just, in just the last few minutes, from the moment I opened that door, it's all come back. The shrieking shack, the howler, you. You owe me an explanation. Delphi looked at her cousin through teary eyes. She thought back to before she, Potter, and Malfoy first used the time-turner. What had they wanted? Why had they chosen to go to such lengths? Delphi wiped the tears from her eyes, so that she could see her cousin more clearly. He was standing there, with her, in that room. He was angry, he was confused, but he was there. Cedric, she began. I can't tell you about the time before. Delphi, you please, she urged, fighting back more tears. Cedric paused for a moment, considering how to respond. Finally, he nodded. I, I don't know what's happened between you and Uncle Amos, she said. I don't know if it took one big act or a thousand little ones. What I saw that day we met in Hogsmeade, what you showed me, how you... It made me so mad. I can't imagine feeling like that every day. She saw Cedric's expression lighten. She wiped new tears from her eyes and continued. But now I've seen you and Uncle Amos across... Uh, across two... two lives. And yes, there's pain in both... 
But right here, in this life, she trailed off. In that moment, she wanted to look at him, no matter how broken, as if she'd never see him again. And then she said, nearly inaudibly, There's hope. And then Delphi broke down. Her whole body went numb. Her arms fell to her sides. Her knees began to give. But she didn't fall, because Cedric Diggory was there to catch her. <laughs> A few days later, Delphi was sorting the mail on the desk of her Uncle Amos's study. Since she'd returned, the organization atop the desk had improved greatly. She'd also opened a few of the curtains to let a bit more light into the room. Her uncle sat immobile in his wheelchair before the window, looking out at the park below, seemingly buried deep under his own thoughts. Then the knock came at the study door, which Delphi had been expecting. Her heart leapt, and she smiled as, her, as she turned to her uncle. Now who do you think that could be? she asked. She walked across the room, opened the door, and the visitor stepped into the study. Delphi pointed to Amos and the visitor paused for a moment to take a deep breath. He slowly walked over to the old man in the wheelchair and knelt down beside him. Hey, Dad, he said softly. Delphi watched as Amos Diggory, without any struggle or hesitation, turned to look at Cedric. She believed she knew why, and it wasn't because he was a winner or a hero. Or a bloody titan. The end. From episode 42, Marcus writes The Iron Giant, based on the film directed by Brad Bird and written by Tim McCanleys. Hogarth Hughes was crouched under his desk at school, pretending the Russians were about to atomize all of Maine, <laughs> when a terrible <laughs> thought occurred to him. It wasn't the worn film strip Mr. Jacobson was playing that set him off. Do your part to save the American race when the bombs start falling. Know your place. Just pull out your chair and duck down there. Under your desk is the safest space. <laughs> Nor was it the fear that the government agent living in his family's spare room might discover the giant robot Hogarth was keeping hidden in the trees behind his house while he was at school. Though, that was a bit closer. The terrible thought was worse than bombs or a million men in dark suits. Alone to his thoughts under the desk, Hogarth realized that the Iron Giant, his best friend in the world, had never eaten candy. <laughs> he must be slipping at the age of nine to have let such an obvious blunder go on for so long. He shuddered to think how his mind might go even further when he reached the double digits, but there would be time to worry about that later. Right now, he had to focus on fixing his horrible oversight. He had to give the giant candy. Mr. Jacobson gave the class the all-clear, and the room was filled with the sound of twenty chairs scraping against the wood floor, while the next part of the video began to play. When the rooskies come knocking at your door, put your trust in God, give those reds what for? But Hogarth wasn't listening. He was already thinking of a way to give the giant the treat of his life. Actual candy wouldn't do, because it wasn't made of metal, and Hogarth hadn't seen his friend eat anything else. But there had to be something. That thought carried him all the way through the day and back home to the woods. The giant was patiently eyeing a pile of scraps when Hogarth made his way out to see him. 
He had taken to waiting to have his dinner with Hogarth, after Hogarth had explained, or at least gestured vigorously, about the concept of family meals. Hogarth's mm-hmm. mom hadn't been around for meals for some time. Hogarth was still trying to teach the giant new words, but had found out very quickly that his friend didn't like getting overloaded with lessons. It was best to keep him to one new word each day. One time, when Hogarth had tried to teach the giant his song about the bomb drills, his eyes had gone red and contracted in the same way they did when he was threatened. They hadn't spoken for the rest of that night. I have a new word for you today, buddy, Hogarth said, brightly. And he sat on a fallen tree by the edge of the clearing the giant had made. It's one of my favorite words, and I'm sorry it took me so long to share it with you. Can you forgive me? The giant looked back and forth between Hogarth and the scrap metal they had collected from Dean. Hogarth nodded, and the giant began shoving old bumpers and pipes and lead refrigerator doors into his huge mouth. (laughs) I'll take that as a yes, Hogarth said, and the giant nodded rigorously, sending bits of metal cascading out the sides of his mouth. Hogarth beamed at him from underneath his aviator goggles. Today's word, the most beautiful word in the English language, is candy. Hogarth had expected a reaction, but the giant just stared at him blankly. Of course he wouldn't know how to react. If he knew what candy was, he wouldn't need to learn about it. Nine really was getting close to old age. Nonetheless, Hogarth pressed on. Can you say candy? Candy! The giant boomed. (laughs) Very good! But since you don't eat normal food like me, and Mom usually can't afford candy when it's not my birthday, I had to think of other options. Do you know what cheese is? The giant cocked his head. It's a type of food that people think gets better with age, which is a crazy thing to say because all cheese is great. But that got me thinking. Maybe the best treat in the world for you would be aged metal. And since all the stuff you're getting here is car parts and pieces of torn down buildings and such, I had to think of the oldest metal I know of. And then I remembered the field trip that I took to Fort Preble a couple years ago. And they had cannons. And cannons are filled with metal balls that even look like candy. And I knew it would be perfect. What do you think? (laughs) Hogarth looked up at the giant nervously Was he being too silly? Why would a spaceman care about candy? But then the giant spoke Friend It was one of the first words Hogarth had taught him And it still made him smile to hear it The giant reached out his massive hand For Hogarth to step onto And pulled him close to his ear to hear their plan Of course a spaceman would care about candy It was, after all, candy (laughs) Kent Mansley was no dummy. He did, as he would tell you, work for the government. But he had made a strategic error in his decision to room with the Hughes family. That little brat of theirs was up to something. He knew it. But instead of getting to keep an eye on him by living so close, he feared he had tipped the kid off to his suspicions. After a week of living with them and following the kid to school, he was no closer to finding the whereabouts of the monster the fishermen had reported to him. The Bureau of Unexplained Phenomena needed an answer soon or they were going to pull him off the case. So Kit decided to move off his surveillance and go back to the source of the initial reports. Yes, cars were being bitten on the mainland now, but the ocean had been the location of the first sightings of this giant creature. And he had access to some of the best naval equipment in the world through his contacts. Battleships, submarines, radar. If the creature came from the sea, he figured, it might return to it. The spray of the ocean was almost too much for Hogarth, but he was having so much fun that he didn't complain. Riding on the giant's head as they made their way across the Atlantic coast, he found the dent that made the giant look so silly was a perfect place to settle in for a long journey. (laughs) The giant had been hesitant initially to go back into the ocean, but Hogarth explained the brilliance of the plan. 
Agent Mansley was too busy looking around the town to find them out here, and since Fort Preble was located in the harbor, they could go right up to the site without having a giant emerge and show himself. Hogarth remembered the bus ride took several hours from Rockwell, but he wasn't sure how long it would take in giant steps. Eventually, the joy of the ride wore off, and Hogarth found his eyes growing heavy. He let sleep take him, knowing that the giant would keep him safe. He even trusted the giant to find the way there. He was uncannily good at locating military outposts, even old ones. Hmm. Hogarth awoke sometime after dark, and was pleased to see that Fort Preble was just as he remembered it. After running around on shore for a bit with his flashlight, he was contented that there was no one there to stop them from getting the giant a snack. Mom said historical sites had limited hours because the government didn't fund them, but that didn't make any sense to Hogarth, because why would they spend money on stupid things like war when they could preserve awesome things like history? (laughs) Sure, Fort Preble was used for war, but wasn't the point of old wars that people would learn from them so they wouldn't have to have new ones? And besides... The fort hadn't actually seen any battle in the Civil War, which made it perfect because all its cannons should still be fully stocked. It didn't take long for Hogarth to find exactly what he was looking for. A pyramid of cannonballs on display in the middle of the courtyard. There were 25 of them in total, Hogarth knew, because he had counted them on his last trip. They sat next to a sign that read, The Artillery of 1863. Hogarth made the bird sound that he had taught the giant as an all-clear for when they would meet in the forest, and his massive form came rising out of the ocean. His eyes lit up with a soft white light that illuminated the base. In three short strides, the giant was standing before Hogarth. Well, here you are, buddy. These cannonballs are almost a hundred years old. I bet they taste just like candy. I'm actually almost jealous that I can't have one, Hogarth said. And he sat down his flashlight to hoist the utmost cannonball to the giant. It was very heavy, but Hogarth did his best to hold it steady. He didn't want to look weak in front of his friend. The giant picked up Hogarth and the cannonball with one sweeping motion and opened his mouth to say, Candy. Hogarth, whose (laughs) arms were now shaking, tossed the treat into the giant's mouth. It fell away into the darkness and clanged as it hit his inner workings. The giant stumbled back and set Hogarth down roughly. He then put his hands on his stomach and cocked his head at Hogarth. That might be a bit of a stomach ache. I think that means it's working. When I haven't had sweets in a while, sometimes my stomach gets sore when I tried the first one, but then I just keep eating more candy until I'm so full I can't move anymore, then I fall asleep, and when I wake up, I don't feel sick. You should have some more. (laughs) The giant looked at Hogarth for a moment, but then did what he was told and grabbed the entire pile of cannonballs with one hand. He shook them into his mouth, and their clanging was loud enough that Hogarth was glad he had checked to make sure the area was clear before he had called for his friend. This time, after the initial clanging, the rumbling in the giant's stomach didn't stop. His great hands once more clutched his abdomen, and Hogarth had a terrible new thought. What if the giant got sick and had to sleep here in the middle of the courtyard? His mom would be so mad and he would get into so much trouble. But that thought evaporated almost instantly as the entire courtyard was filled with a blinding light. Hogarth recognized the voice coming from the megaphone before his eyes adjusted to be able to find its owner. Agent Mansley. Stay where you are. God bless Radar and God bless the USA. You are under arrest for vandalizing a national historical site and under suspicion of working with the Soviets against the interests of the United States. When his eyes could finally see again, Hogarth realized with dawning horror that Agent Mansley was aiming a bazooka directly at the giant. There was no time to talk him down, no time to do anything. The giant's vision had already gone red. His electric eyes narrowed into deadly pinpoints. Hogarth had seen this happen before, but he'd always been able to talk him down or remove the threat that set him off. Now there was no chance of that. 
Agent Mansley was bad enough standing on the ancient battlement, but he was flanked by four more agents all bearing weapons and shouting next to giant floodlights. Whatever the giant had been hiding, whatever terrible past Hogarth had been denying, this was it. It was all going to come out. Hogarth looked up at his giant friend and silently begged him to stand down. He hoped the agents wouldn't hurt him, but his sludge-like nine-year-old brain couldn't find the words to make any of it happen. The seconds stretched on and on like the moments of his first bomb drill when he had still been afraid, until finally the giant reached a breaking point. But it wasn't what Hogarth had been expecting. He didn't shoot lasers out of his eyes or tear them in apart. He didn't launch missiles or reveal massive machine guns in his fingertips. Instead, the giant, there was nothing else to call it, threw up. Cannonball after cannonball came spewing from his giant mouth and tearing into the centuries-old walls of Fort Preble. The men standing on top of the structure were forced to abandon their weapons as they tried to jump out of the way. Hogarth tried to keep track of the number of cannonballs, but it was hard to mark over the chaos that was consuming the yard. The lights had been hit, and the Hogarth's flashlight now seemed too pale to make a dent in the darkness. Hogarth thought he had counted 24 by the time the barrage stopped. He looked up at his friend and was relieved to see that his eyes had returned to normal. Candy, the giant said simply. <laughs> I think we should get out of here, Hogarth said. Well, we still have time. Ready to hit the road? I mean, uh, ocean? The giant picked Hogarth up and turned back to the water. But they hadn't made it a full step when a shout washed over them. Not this time, Mansley bellowed. Before Hogarth could even turn around, the rocket hit the giant's back. His fingers curled instinctively into a protective cage around Hogarth, and while Hogarth felt the heat of the impact, he was relatively unharmed when the giant crashed to the ground on the shore. When the blast subsided, the giant's fingers went limp, and Hogarth was able to push his way free. He rushed to his friend's face, which was buried in the sand, but he couldn't see any signs of life. He was too scared to dig down and see if the giant's eyes were still lit. Please, please, he begged, his voice finally returning to him. Can't be dead. You're my best friend, please. What's the matter, Slugger? Your red friend here not here to protect you anymore? You're only a minor, but treason is treason, kiddo. I'm sure they'll forgive me for this. Hogarth pulled his eyes away from the giant with great effort and turned to see Agent Mansley holding up the bazooka once more. He was covered in dust from where the fort had fallen, and Hogarth could see that he was bleeding under his torn suit, but he had a mad smile in his eyes. He approached directly behind the giant and took aim. But the rumbling Hogarth heard then was not the ignition of a rocket. It was something much more miraculous. With shocking accuracy, the final cannonball revealed itself, launching out of the giant's backside and hitting Agent Mansley square in the chest. At once confirming that Hogarth's friend was still alive and that he had been successfully able to count the number of cannonballs in the heat of battle. Maybe he wasn't losing it at nine after all. The giant rolled over and Hogarth rushed to hug the side of his face, at least as much of it as he could get his small arms around. He knew that there was a risk of overloading his friends with too many new ideas in his day, but he decided to risk it. I guess I'll have to teach you two more new words, he said. When I get sick like that, my mom says it's coming out of both ends. <laughs> the giant looked at Hogarth and repeated in his booming voice, Both ends. <laughs> the end. <laughs> From episode 43, Eric writes 112263, based on the television series developed by Bridget Carpenter, adapted from Stephen King's novel. When Jake awoke on Friday morning, Sadie wasn't there. 
He had no memory of her leaving, which was strange considering he was such a light sleeper. She hadn't touched the coffee maker or the toaster, the usual signs of her semi-nightly occupancy of Jake's apartment. Worse, her toothbrush was no longer in the cup by the sink. There was no note. Jake dressed quickly, trying not to let himself think about Sadie. The argument last night, or was it the night before, hadn't been the way he wanted to leave things, but there was nothing he could do about that now. Light gray slacks and a white shirt, no tie. He didn't bother to shave. What would be the point? He didn't see the school bus until he had already stepped out onto Elsbeth Street. The driver laid on the horn, and Jake jumped back just before it came rushing past his nose. A receding trail of audible laughter told him that the kids on board found this near collision very amusing. Catching his breath, he finished crossing the street and unlocked the Pontiac, realizing with a slight stumble that if those kids were already on their way to school, he must have woken up late this morning. What time was it? No matter. He wasn't planning on going into work today. Classes were sure to be canceled in the afternoon. He shook his head. Why would classes be canceled? Was he that convinced of his own impending failure? <laughs> he drove. It was out of his way, but he swung by the house on Beckley Street just to see if Oswald was hanging around. Maybe he could just convince him to go visit his wife in Irving today. He smiled at the thought. He'd probably get punched in the nose if he did that. Besides, Jake hadn't spoken to Oswald in almost a year, not since Marina and the girl moved out of his building on Elsbeth before the man had wound up renting a room just a few blocks down the road. Oswald was nowhere to be seen as he crept slowly past the house, probably already at work. The car gave a slight shudder and stopped. Jake's vision blurred for a moment, and he realized that he must have hit a parked car. He got out and checked the damage, but there wasn't even a dent on his, his or the Ford he had run into. Solid metal on these old cars, he mused. <laughs> he had no memory of the drive to Norma's, except to note that the sign outside St. Cecilia's Catholic read, Welcome, Mr. President. As if the motorcade would ever find its way down to Winnetka Heights. Norma's was busy, but there was an empty stool at the counter. He sat and ordered a coffee, head pounding. You remember you were supposed to meet me here a half hour ago, right? Came a nebbish voice to his right. He turned to find Bill leaning against the counter beside him, <laughs> hair greasy and bags under his eyes. Clearly, he hadn't had much sleep last night. Bill? Jake's voice was rasping like he hadn't spoken in weeks. I'm sorry. What time is it? Almost nine, the older man replied as Norma set down a brown mug in front of Jake. Any luck this morning? Did you take care of Oswald? Jake blinked and took a sip of lukewarm coffee and tried to sort through his muddy thoughts. Was he supposed to have done something this morning? Bill sat down in the stool next to Jake as its former occupant dropped a few quarters on the counter and vacated. Well? He pressed. Uh, I didn't see him, was Jake's slow reply. Probably at work by now. Bill's voice dropped to a whisper. Do you still have the gun? He asked. Gun? Jake tried to remember what Bill was talking about. Yeah, you know, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> he fired his finger guns at Jake. They still have guns in the future, right? Y yeah, there's still guns, Jake nodded. God damn, his, this headache was killing him. He squeezed his eyes shut and tried to ignore the pain for a moment. There was a heavy clatter on the counter, and Bill shouted, Hey! His eyes sprang open, and he found that his mug of coffee was lying on its side. Contents splattered all over soaking the newspaper belonging to the lady to his left. 
She was scowling at him and dabbing at a drop on her dress with a napkin. He had been holding the mug just a moment before. He must have dropped it. His hand was still closed, as if his fingers were still wrapped around the mug's handle. How the hell did he manage to drop it? He must be losing it. You're close to the nexus point is all, (laughs) came a gruff voice occupying the space that Bill was supposed to be. He turned to find the old man with the yellow press card in his hat band (laughs) sitting on Bill's stool, looking him directly in the eyes. Bill was nowhere to be seen, as if he'd never even been there. You, Jake said simply as he stared at the stranger with the wild eyes. What's... what's a nexus point? The yellow card man smiled. The hub where all paths meet. The convergence that connects all the differing threads of causality. The vanishing point, if you will. You might even call it a very unmiraculous time hole. (laughs) Jake looked back down at the counter and realized he was holding the coffee mug again. It was still very full of coffee. He set it down on the counter, which was completely clean. The newspaper to Jake's left was dry. He looked back at the yellow card man. You saw me spill that, right? Jake asked hesitantly. Mm, Maybe there's a timeline where you spilled the coffee and you've just managed to sidestep it. Jake blinked and said nothing. The strange man chuckled to himself. Ripples in a pond, Mr. Ellering. Epping, Jake quickly (laughs) corrected. Then he caught himself. Amberson, I mean, how how do you know me? Because you're not supposed to be here. You're causing too many ripples. What does that mean? Jake was breathing harder now. The pounding in his head was getting worse, and his limbs were starting to numb. He tried to massage the feeling back into his fingers. If you spill the coffee this morning, does the woman sitting next to you have to go home to change her coffee-stained dress? When she gets home, does she find her husband in bed with the neighbor's wife? What happens then? Strong words and a hasty divorce? What about the children they had planned on raising together? Are they never even born? Who have you met in your life, Mr. Epping, who ceased to be because of the ripples you've caused? Can you even remember their names? Jake's mind strained, trying to focus on faces from his past. Did they have names? Were they just faces he had invented? Who was this young woman, and why did he feel like he had slept with her last night? (laughs) It was like trying to read a book written in a language you don't speak while wearing someone else's prescription lenses. (laughs) Is it possible, the yellow card man's voice faded to a whisper, that your actions might invariably prevent your own conception? Jake nervously sipped at his coffee trying to remember who he was supposed to have met at Norma's today. The streets near Dealey Plaza were packed with cars, so Jake parked the Pontiac a block past the Union Station and walked to the Texas School Book Depository. He, his watch told him it was almost noon, which meant he was running way behind. How much time had he spent at the diner? It felt like hours. The crowds had gathered, and Jake felt a, joke, a jolt of deja vu. He crossed Main, approached Elm Street, and stared at the very spot that it would all happen in less than an hour. Al's old tape copy of the Zapruder film had been played so many times that it had been practically falling apart, 
but he still recognized some of the blissfully ignorant standers by from the footage. It was surreal. Crossing Elm, he approached the seven-story brick structure of the depository building and peered up at the corner window on the sixth floor. The window was open, but there was yet no sign of Oswald, whom he found in an alley behind the building. You're fucking late, asshole, (laughs) he said accusatorily. He looked pissed off, but Jake was used to seeing him like this by now. You knew I'd be here? Jake asked after a moment. Don't talk to me. Not out here. Just get in position, okay? He's downtown and heading this way. I'm going upstairs. Jake didn't know what the man was talking about, but he had an inkling he was supposed to do something. Where are... He began, and Oswald cut him off. Tell me you brought the rifle. Jake chewed on this for half a second, but suddenly remembered that it was stashed in the trunk of his car. He nodded to Oswald, who rolled his eyes and said, Then get to the knoll. He ducked back inside the service entrance of the building, letting it shut behind him. Something about this was seriously off. In all the months Jake had been living in the past, mostly within a few feet of Lee Harvey Oswald, he had never been able to ascertain whether or not the man had had any co-conspirators. The microphones Jake had planted in the the apartment above his own back when Lee and Marina had lived there told him that he was an angry man, prone to violence, who felt deeply dissatisfied with the state of his country. There was no evidence, however, that he had maintained any contacts with agents in the Soviet Union. The lone gunman theory had seemed the most likely. Of course, Jake's vigilance had slipped in the last few weeks. Oswald lived close, but Jake couldn't keep tabs on him all the time. Jake had a job, he had a girlfriend, though he couldn't place her name at the moment. He had been living in his life in this part of the 20th century for so long that his mission had become a bit of a blur. Everything had become a bit of a blur. He thought about the rifle resting in the trunk of the Pontiac and made a decision, and as he did so, memories from the last few weeks solidified slightly in the mush that was his brain. Whispered conversations and hasty phone calls as Jake worked to gain Oswald's trust bubbled up in his mind. Infiltration was the key to his strategy, and now their plans were coming to fruition. Today was the day they were going to assassinate President Kennedy. Doubt struck him then. Surely there were other conspirators, right? Had Jake suddenly become the rumored but never confirmed co-conspirator in the JFK assassination? Was that even possible? Jake walked quickly back to the car, which he had conveniently parked just to the west of the book depository. Hadn't it been several blocks south just a moment ago? (laughs) And popped the trunk. He eyed the rifle suspiciously for a moment. Jake had only ever fired a gun a few times in his life, but Oswald didn't know that. He lowered the lid of the trunk a bit and stared off towards the grassy knoll, the location that had supposedly hidden the second shooter, according to many conspiracy theorists. Oswald's plan seemed to be to have Jake camp there with his rifle and... And what? And shoot Kennedy? There's no way he would do that. Besides, even if he tried, he'd miss by a mile. He was no sniper. The entire world seemed to pass underwater for a brief moment and Jake shook his head to clear it. He opened the trunk again and looked at the handgun lying inside. Part of him had expected to see a rifle sitting there, but he wasn't sure why. Some words came to him unbidden then. 
Maybe there's a timeline where you spilled the coffee and you've just managed to sidestep it. Was it Bill who had told him that? He pocketed the revolver and shut the lid of the trunk, entering the Texas school book depository through the service entrance where Oswald had disappeared minutes before. Jake checked his watch. Almost half past twelve. Where had all the time gone? It was almost too late. Jack bounded up the stairs two steps at a time, navigating as if he'd been in this building before, though he was pretty sure that he hadn't, and found Oswald crouching by the open corner window on the sixth floor, partially hidden amongst several stacked cardboard boxes. There was a rifle in the small man's hands, held vertically in a ready position. He seemed unaware of Jake's presence. There was a quiet, roaring sound from outside the open window as several dozen people standing along Elm Street began to cheer. Was the president's motorcade already passing through? Oswald visibly tensed, and he rested his elbow on a box that he had set up as an armrest, pointing the barrel of the rifle out at the window and towards the open-top limousine that was no doubt cruising their direction. The pistol was now out of Jake's pocket, held shakily in his sweaty hands. Hopefully he wouldn't have to use it, but what if Oswald rounded the rifle on him? He'd have no choice but to kill the man. He became acutely aware that this was the moment that he had been working towards for the last two years. He was now in the room with Lee Harvey Oswald as he prepared to put a bullet through President Kennedy's skull, and he realized that he couldn't let it happen. Lee... Jake said hoarsely to get the man's attention. It seemed to work. Oswald jumped a foot into the air and spun, clumsily striking the muzzle of the rifle against the windowsill as he turned, apparently caught completely off guard by Jake's sudden appearance. Another line floated through his head, as if from a dream. Is it possible that your actions might invariably prevent your own conception? Jake closed his eyes and squeezed the trigger. White-hot pain erupted in Oswald's left arm as the bullet struck him and he let out an involuntary howl. He dropped the rifle, falling against the brick wall next to the window, and gripped the bleeding wound with his right hand, squeezing his eyes shut in pain. Fear of a second gunshot forced him to open his eyes, but when he did so, he found that he was alone in the room. A moment ago, Jake... The man he thought he had b that had been his friend was standing ten feet away with a gun pointed at him, and now... nothing. Jake! He shouted, but there was no response. The pain seemed to fade for a moment, and he managed to compose himself long enough to regain his knees and poke his head over the sill of the window. There, only fifty yards below him, goddamn Kennedy's limo was passing by on Elm Street. In a panic, he grabbed the rifle off the floor with his bloody hand, aimed it out the window, took a deep breath, and fired. The shot was hasty, and it ricocheted off the rear bumper of the car, now already making its way towards the railroad underpass. He cursed under his breath, cocked the bolt-action rifle, and fired again, but the limo had already begun accelerating, secret servicemen rushing to hop aboard the car and protect the assholes aboard. The shot managed to strike within a few inches of the president, but the car was now too far gone to get in a third shot. He had failed. Kennedy had managed to get away. Oswald had missed his chance. And where the fuck was his backup? Wasn't that jerk-off... God, what was his name? Supposed to be firing from the grassy knoll? Wait a second. Wasn't he just up here a minute ago? 
James? No, Jake. That sounded right. Oswald spun back towards the room, but there was nobody there. Who's Jake? He thought to himself. Why does my arm hurt? He looked down at his left bicep, but it seemed to be completely fine. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> the end. <laughs> From episode 44, Andrew writes The Gunslinger, based on the book by Stephen King. In the early days of Jake's company with the Gunslinger, no more than three months after their meeting, the two travelers came to a place that significantly expanded Jake's understanding of what was possible in the wasteland well more than any other before it. At the time, both of Jake's ankles were broken. Crushed, really. Mm. Not two nights previously, he and the gunslinger had been attacked at their campsite by bandits. As the gunslinger held off a few attacking on horseback, two others quietly approached Jake on foot. One bandit grabbed Jake and held him still. The other brought down a sledgehammer on each of tra- Jake's ankles. Oh. When the gunslinger had the last bandit cornered, <laughs> he asked him why they'd done such a thing to Jake. Eatin's better when the meat's alive, the bandit replied. He'd been the one wielding the sledgehammer. The gunslinger planted bullets in the bandit's ankles and knees, and they left him to die. They rode for almost two days off their set course, across flat, empty lands, towards a settlement where the gunslinger believed they'd find aid. Jake spent most of that time unconscious. His naked feet hung bruised and swollen over each side of his horse, which the gunslinger led from atop his own. They reached into Gosha in the mid-afternoon, though they'd been able to see its wall since mid-morning. The settlement lied in the center of the remains of a collapsed volcano. <laughs> the great mountain's sheer side still stood, except for a single, narrow crack which functioned as the entrance into the settlement. Hmm. The path through the rock wall was long and winding, Jake, who was slightly awake at the time, didn't mind this too much. He was thankful for the cool shade of the crevice path after days in the shelterless flatlands. With his mind taken off the heat, his thoughts turned to his condition. He never felt so weak before, even compared to the time of his death back in New York. That had gone quickly. (laughs) He'd wanted to tell the gunslinger how he felt, but he didn't have the strength to form the words. So he just let out a light moan. The gunslinger heard him. Not too much farther now. And he was right. But a few minutes later they trotted into the sunlight, now inside the walls of Indigosha. When Jake first laid eyes upon the settlement, he didn't quite believe what he saw, thinking himself delirious from his condition. However, Jake's eyes were not fooling him. he just entered a truly singular place on the wasteland literally unlike any other. The first thing Jake, and most other first-time visitors to Indigosha, would notice is the color. Unlike the cracked, dusty red ground of the wastelands outside those walls, the ground inside the basin was a cool, bluish shade of violet. The Indigotian elders claimed this coloration of the soil was due to ancient berry plants, which once grew on the slopes of the mountain. After it collapsed and the plants were buried, the elders said the juice of the crushed berries seeped into the soil, coloring, and more importantly, fertilizing it. Even at the present time, the basin of Indigosha remained one of the few known places where planting was possible, 
though the choice of crops was restricted by the harsh climate. The most effective and abundant crop grown by the Indigotians was known as lavender wheat, named after its unique shade. Hmm. As they entered the basin, Jake and the gunslinger were promptly greeted by a party of ten riders on horseback. The riders' appearances were as striking to Jake as his current surroundings. He first noticed their long, white hair. It reflected the harsh sunlight into his eyes. Some riders wore their hair in braids, others let it fall naturally. Their skin was a reddish-blue shade. Jake likened it to the color his skin would turn if it held his breath a really long time. <laughs> they all rode deformed horses, similar to those Jake and the gunslinger rode. Each animal had more than four legs, or more than two eyes, but these aberrations <laughs> were offset by the brilliance of their white coats. The riders themselves wore light, flowing garments of various shades of violet. As they approached, Jake, who was now only about half-conscious, thought they were angels come to take him to the after-afterlife. <laughs> the rider at the head of the party came to a stop before the gunslinger. Roland Deshane, she said. What brings you here? Friend, the gunslinger began. How may I address you? Elder Akame, the rider replied. Elder, the gunslinger said. My companion needs attention immediately. Elder Akame glanced past the gunslinger to Jake. When she saw the boy's swollen feet, she frowned and nodded. You seek the ale, she said, turning back to the gunslinger, who nodded. Jake overheard this and wondered how getting drunk would heal his feet. <laughs> if that's what it took, he thought, he'd give it a shot. <laughs> Jake awoke in a warm bed in a chill room. The hay bedding below him felt scratchy against his back, but it was softer than the hard ground he'd been sleeping on lately. He propped himself up on his elbows, which sank through the hay and, f sank through the hay and felt the smooth, warm stone beneath. The stone surface felt like he'd been recently sitting out in the afternoon sun, which it had. Jake was still mostly in a stupor. He was hardly aware of up and down, let alone that he was in an Indigotian healing room. The heated rock and freshly cut bedding had been prepared by caregivers, one of whom was in the room with Jake as he rose. Her name was Oka, and she had her long white hair secured in two long braids to keep it out of her face while she worked. Easy, she said to him. You're going to be fine. She rested a hand on his shoulder. Jake turned to look at her with a weak roll of his head. He was taken by the shade of her complexion, forgetting the riders he'd seen earlier. Are you an alien? He asked. <laughs> Oka cocked her head at his question. She didn't understand what he meant, and chalked the nonsense up to his delirium. Another caregiver entered the room with a ceramic growler and a cup. Oka turned and gestured for him to approach. He handed her the cup and uncorked the growler, pouring a deep, violet liquid into the smaller vessel. As the liquid filled it, a white, frothy head formed at the top. Once full... Oka turned back to Jake and put the cup to his lips. Drink, she said. The scent of the cup's contents filled Jake's nostrils. He breathed it in deeply. It smelled unlike anything he could think of. A strange combination of something fruity and something savory. Whatever it was, it comforted him. So he drank. 
a young brewmaster named Yatesh led the gunslinger, an elder Akame, down a narrow stair and into the deepest basement of the Indigotian brew house. The air down there was cold and dry, and the only light came from a few torches on posts in the room's center. The modest space was half-moon-shaped, with casks of dark wood stacked three or four high, lining the long, curved side. Yatesh pointed uh, to a small cask on top of the stack to their right. That's her? the gunslinger asked. The young man nodded. The gunslinger approached the cask, removing his gloves. He touched his bare right hand atop the small cask and felt a warmth, but not a heat, emanating from it. The lightest of smiles appeared on his lips. How well did you know, Elder Jessa? Akame asked the gunslinger. He responded without turning to her. We were lovers, he said. (laughs) I came here for the first time weakened, like my companion, only alone. She mended me back to health and showed me the magic of this place, of the ale. The smile on the gunslinger's lips grew as the memories filled his mind. He continued. She and I would drink the ale and make love. It's how we spent each night for many weeks. The power of the ale assistant our endurance. Not that Jessa needed it. She was a hardy woman on her own. The gunslinger turned back to the Indigotians and saw an expression of discomfort on Yatesh's face. My apologies, the gunslinger said. Did I offend? Akame's face bore an amused smile. No, she replied. It's just that. She hesitated for a moment, suppressing a chuckle. Jessa was Yatesha's grandmother. Oh, the gunslinger said. I suppose that is a bit embarrassing then. (laughs) Yatesh held up his hands and shook his head. No, no, he said. No offense, I'll uh, just uh, fetch a cup. The gunslinger nodded to the young man. Thank you, Si. (laughs) Night had fallen when Jake woke. The sensation of waking did not feel to him as it usually did. Rather than groggy and stiff, Jake felt a looseness to his body and a lightness. A constant yet gentle breeze seemed to be moving right through him rather than over and across him, as if he were translucent like the sheer curtain against his apartment window back in Brooklyn. Then he felt a warmth, but not a heat, begin to build down at his feet, and a soft lavender glow filled the room. Although the light surprised Jake, he did not feel afraid. He propped himself up on his elbows and peered down to the end of the bed at the source of the glow. At the time, Jake didn't fully understand what he saw there at the end of his bed, but he would soon enough. It was the spirit of a female antelope, a doe. (laughs) Jake had seen an antelope out in the wasteland, but none quite like this. Most animals in his world had, as some people he met would say, lost the thread. They had become deformed, like their horses, with extra eyes or limbs or twisted bodies. The spirit standing before Jake wasn't like that. It was as it should be. It was perfect to him. As his caregiver Oka would say the next day, The doe spirit that appeared in Jake's room had found the thread once again. The spirits of animals lose their way in the wasteland, she said. And when the spirit decays, so does the body. The Indigotian people hunt these creatures for food, and we set aside their heads for the ale. How does that work? 
Jake asked eagerly. <laughs> Oka smiled at his enthusiasm and continued. We boil the head in the groundwater we harvest from beneath the brew house to make a broth. This broth holds vestiges of the creature's spirit and is added during the brewing process, right before fermentation. The primary and most active ingredient in Indigo Chanel is the weed, I bet, Jake interjected. Oka chuckled. <laughs> yes, you're right. Lavender wheat bears a rare yeast upon its grains. During fermentation, the yeast excites and heals the spirit held in the broth. The spirit then permeates every drop of the drink. And then drinking the ale replaces, releases the, the, heal, the healed spirit? Jake asked. Like the dough in my room last night. Yes, but not into the air, as you may be thinking, Oka explained. The remnant of the spirit within the ale is released into your body. But it was at the foot of my bed, Jake said. It licked my ankles and they began to heal. I saw it. I felt it. It kind of tickled. I was afraid I was going to kick it in the face. <laughs> Oka laughed at this, which brought a grin to Jake's face. You would not have harmed it. This is just how the spirit affects your mind. You see it in its true shape. The brewing process helped find the thread. And as it flows through you, it helps your spirit find the thread too, which heals your wounds. Jake didn't fully understand what she meant. The whole thread thing still confused him. But whatever the ale was doing was working. He'd see the dough again that night and each night over the week that followed. He would awaken to its violet glow every time and the and awe at the beauty of its ghostly form. Jake had seen a lot of terrible, grisly things during his time traveling the wasteland, but this spirit and the settlement of Indigosha showed him that it was possible to find peace, even if it didn't come until the after-afterlife. Ten days after they entered Indigosha, Jake and the gunslinger rode back out into the wasteland. They were rested, healed, and carrying two weeks' provisions, enough to safely get them to the next settlement at the edge of the flatland. Jake was in a good mood, the best since he found himself in the wasteland. He spent the first few days of their journey after Indigosha sharing details of his stay there with the gunslinger. They had spent most of their time apart while in the basin. While Jake spoke at length about Oka, the healing house, and the Indigoshan ale, frequently gesturing enthusiastically with his arms to illustrate his stories. The gunslinger stayed quiet, only half listening. His thoughts were elsewhere. It can't be done, Jessa had said, back in the dark, cold basement of the brew house. He had been alone with her there. The elders kindly respected his request for privacy. <laughs> so you did try, the gunslinger said, looking upon her translucent form before him. She was as beautiful as the day he left, but she was now one of the spirits, like those they brought into themselves all those years ago. The Indigotians commonly imbibed the ales of their ancestors before making love or going on hunts or eating great meals. They did so to share earthbound pleasures with those who'd passed on. Yes, Jessa replied. He's visited Indigosha on several occasions. Several. The gunslinger asked in surprise. Yes, but I only encountered him once. As I requested before my death, the elders gave him a cup of my ale. He is not foolish, Roland. He hides the information deep, 
where even spirits cannot reach. The elders have told me that other spirits have tried, but all have failed. Was he through recently? The gunslinger asked. No. I believe he caught on to what we were doing. He hasn't been seen here in a generation. The gunslinger hung his head. Another flicker of hope snuffed. Lately, regardless of the distance they traveled, he felt as if the tower were slipping farther, farther away. Then he felt her warm, but not hot, touch on his skin. Jessa seemed to lift it up, as if her fingers were flesh again. His eyes met hers. And then... Roland? The gunslinger blinked and found himself once again on his horse. The dusty red waist expanded infinitely before him. Roland, Jake said again. The gunslinger turned to the boy. What is it, kid? I asked if you got what you wanted back there. The gunslinger considered looking back at the walls of Indigosha behind them. He thought that, if he did, then maybe he'd see a glint of her lavender glow peek over at peek over them. He sighed and lifted his reins. No, Jake, he said. And enough chatter. Let's pick up the pace. As their horses carried them away from Indigosha at a steady gallop, Jake frequently glanced back, glanced back to watch the walls gradually fade away from view. But the gunslinger never did. The end. Whoa. From episode 45, Marcus writes The Color of Magic, based on the novel by Terry Pratchett. Death thought he was subtle, which made him even more annoying. He had been following Rincewind and Two Flowers since they left the newly flaming ruin of Ankh Morpork. As far as Rincewind could tell, Death believed he was going thoroughly unnoticed. There were a few clues to this effect. The whooshing of Death's cloak as he ducked behind a tree or rock when Rincewind turned around. The cocky walk and smile on his expressionless skull face when he didn't see Rincewind looking. And, most tellingly, the constant projected monologue rattling around in Rincewind's head. I'm coming for you, Rincewind, though you do not know. I'm coming for you, Rincewind, though you do not know. Rincewind had noticed this habit of deaths before. Since the Timeless Devourer didn't speak in the open air, he sometimes forgot that his muttered telepathic messages carried rather farther than spoken words. It wasn't that Death was a bad guy, per se. Rincewind had just grown tired of the hooded figure following him around and promising to take him to the lands beyond Atuan. So far, Death had been unsuccessful at convincing Rincewind that his time was nigh, so their disagreements were only skin, or perhaps bone, deep. And, in Two Flowers' most obliviously frustrating moments... Rincewind even considered calling Death out so he would have someone more sensible to speak with. The three <laughs> finally converged when Rincewind and Two Flower stumbled upon a patch of mushrooms near the edge of the thicket of unrelenting torment. <laughs> Two Flower had started the process of bagging the mushrooms as souvenirs for his countrymen before Rincewind was able to convince him that they were extremely poisonous to anyone who was not magical. It wasn't Rincewind's words that did the trick, so much as the fact that when Two Flower popped a mushroom in his mouth, Death swooped down on him, startling Two Flower enough that he spat up the mushroom before consuming a fatal dose of the poison. <laughs> You're all right, said Rincewind, as Two Flower sputtered and scraped his tongue with his hands. But he's... he's... Two Flower began. Yes, Two Flower, I would like you to meet Death. Death, this is Two Flower. I know who he is, Rincewind. Death's voice reverberated in Rincewind's head, 
and he could tell Two Flower heard it too, as the tourist grasped his head in an exaggerated motion. Aren't you curious as to how I got here so fast? Not really, Rincewood said simply. You've been following us for leagues. The face <sighs> of death was ageless and unchanging, but Rincewood could swear he felt a frown emanating from beneath the hood. <laughs> oh, I see, Death said. I mean, Rincewind backpedaled. I wasn't sure at first. I figured maybe you'd been caught in more pork, collecting souls who perished in the fire. No, no one died, Death said gravely. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Rincewind said. <laughs> and he took a moment to think of how his life had come to comforting Death, while his words hung on the empty air in front of the bewildered two-flower. So, he said, breaking the silence before it could grow dangerously concrete... Uh, what's... what's new? Before Death could answer, <laughs> Two Flowers squealed with delight, his fear of meeting Death completely sidelined by the appearance of two small beings tumbling out of the thicket. They're so tiny! Two Flower exclaimed. <laughs> Just look at them! Shell rot, Rincewind swore. Halflings. <laughs> We're not tiny, you great lumbering oaf, said the nearest halfling, through a mouth stuffed with mushrooms. His hair was brown and curly, in contrast to the blonde and curly hair atop the head of his companion. And we'd thank you to leave us be. We're on an adventure and we found swords. We're not afraid to use them. <laughs> well, not mostly, the blonde chimed in. Two Flowers' face was 90% grin. He turned his dopey head incredulously from the halflings to Rincewind. What can they do with a sword? They're adorable! <laughs> A shocking amount, said Rincewind. They're just dripping with magic, though they'd never admit it. We're not magic. We're simple folks, said the brown-haired halfling. His very breath filled the air with an unmistakable tinge of octarine. Of course you are, said Rincewind. Come along, Two Flower. We have to go before they convince you to. What's your quest? Two Flower said. <laughs> the halflings looked up at him with their irresistible magical earnestness. Double shell rot and four blighted trunks, Rincewind said. <laughs> Weeks into their journey with the halflings, and hundreds of leagues of marching later, Rincewind took stock of the positive <laughs> sides of having joined their quest. <laughs> Though he first had to note that even making the list was a negative, since he could tell he only had the impulse because of the frustrating magical distortion the halflings cast effortlessly on their party. They gave their companions hope, which was well enough for them because halflings were nearly impossible to kill. It was always their fellows who fell on their adventures. They would get into a pinch, then someone else would be compelled to make a sacrifice, and the halflings would mourn their friends in their adorable way before marching on with solemnity until they ate the next of their dozen daily meals and laughed about the simple pleasures of the world. <laughs> this propensity for living against all odds at least came with a positive. Death was uncomfortable around the halflings, and since Rincewind and Two Flower joined their party, he had decided to leave them alone with a cryptic parting message of, I'll see you at the end, Rincewind. He loved saying that because it was always true. Death came to everyone, including halflings probably, at the end, but the message carried with it a vague threat of being at the end of this particular journey. Overall, though, no death had to be considered a positive. Another plus was that the halflings were on a quest to Desolation Peak, the deadliest and most wicked volcano in all of Discworld. Going to the mountain, which was said to be hot enough to burn through the very souls of the Dark Lord Drithian's enemies, was not a positive. <laughs> but its relative closeness to Two Flowers' home was. 
If they made it to the end, he could finally be free of his charge, and from his very limited experience with halflings, Rincewind knew there was almost no chance that Tuplau would be able to abandon the journey until they at least reached the base of Desolation Peak. Even a wizard would have trouble leaving the halflings. Rincewind was not bullish on his own chances, and had felt his spell boiling beneath the surface during a few of their more perilous encounters. Finally, Rincewind had to admit that the halflings were... cute. The brown-haired one went by the name of Sippy, and the blonde, Goldwyn. Together, Gold and Sippy faced every struggle in their adventure with the narrative certainty that they, wouldn't, they would succeed to their journey's end. On days when Rincewind traveled far enough scouting from their campsite that the octoring cleared from the air, he considered this a negative. But when he was with the halflings, it was hard to be bitter. Even the sapien pearwood luggage of two flowers had taken a liking to their new companions. It bounced along happily and let Sippy ride atop it from time to time. <laughs> the journey to Desolation Peak had an air of hope about it. Until they reached the foot of the mountain. Rincewind had never killed so many orcs in his life. <laughs> Their party was set upon the Dark Lord Drithian's advance guard when they reached the edge of his cursed swampland. The halflings did their part, and the luggage even managed to take down a few, but most of the slaughter came down to Rincewind. His blessed sword, a gift from the halflings who laughed about it being too large for them, cleaved heads from bodies. His swings <laughs> severed limbs and plunged into hearts. By the end of this encounter, Rincewind was covered in blood, mostly the black hue of the orcs, and Twoflower was in shock under a pile of corpses. <laughs> the wizard seized upon this opportunity to try to break the halflings' hold on Twoflower. We've journeyed with Sippy and Gold as far as we can. It's time to bring you home, he said as he pulled Twoflower out of the mess of corpses. To Rincewind's shock and delight, the halflings agreed. Of course you must go, Goldwyn said. This is our burden. We must destroy the amulet. We thank you for your companionship, Sippy added. To Rincewind's shock and disgust, this only encouraged Twoflower to stay. But you're so brave, he said. We must see you to your journey's end. <laughs> Blighted trunks and shell rot didn't even begin to cover it. And as they took their first steps up the mountain, Rincewind heard the familiar chorus of, I'm coming for you, Rincewind, though you do not know. I'm coming for you, Rincewind, though you do not know. The scene above the fires of Desolation Peak was a nightmare at the end of countless hours of waking misery. They had slaughtered many more orcs and even a couple of trolls on their way to the molten core of the mountain. Rincewind carried a limp for his efforts and the luggage bore deep cuts as a testament to its bravery. The halflings were particularly ash-covered and Twoflower, well, he was in one piece but had lost some of his joy at being on an adventure. Death had abandoned any pretense of hiding and glided along the path only steps behind the travelers. Fortunately, when they reached the throne room, they found the magnificent seat of the Dark Lord Drithian's power was abandoned. The halflings apparently had other friends, and a group of heroes had led Drithian to a confrontation in the south. All they had to do was drop the amulet off the edge of the walkway, leading to the cursed bone chair that was suspended over the sea of lava. But of course, it couldn't be that easy. The halflings, who Rincewind had once thought might have been lovers, came surprisingly quickly to blows. They argued loudly in adorably high-pitched voices about using the amulet to make their agrarian life less dreary. Twoflower pulled out his camera and overworked the little man inside as he made him paint a series of the confrontation. 
Please, you are friends, Rincewen shouted. <laughs> you are so close to saving your land, just join together and you can triumph. The halflings stopped their blows and straightened themselves to their full diminutive height. They looked from the wizard to stare deeply into each other's eyes. He's right, said Sippy, brushing a bit of Goldwyn's hair from his face. <laughs> Neither of us can control the power of the amulet. We are but simple non-magic folks, Goldwyn agreed. Rincewind checked his desire to roll his eyes. He may have been unfortunate enough to learn a single overpowering spell before he could train fully as a wizard at the university. But he now saw the magic of words. He had formed a bond with the halflings that was more powerful than even Lord Drithian's amulet. And there was an honest beauty in that. Or so he thought. We can't control the amulet on our own, Sippy said. But together, Goldwyn said. And he finished his thought by holding Sippy close and placing the enchanted chain of the amulet around both of their necks. Their <laughs> eyes burst into a brilliant light. A shade of octarine enveloped them with a tint of the Dark Lord's signature color. And they spoke in a deep unison. The halfling shall live in the shadows no more. The world will bow before the might of Sippy and gold. <laughs> the force of their words made Rincewin stagger, and his mind raced as it was filled with the frenzied recitation of some ancient ritual in a language long lost to all but death. Fighting his voice, this voice from death was the sudden swell of words known only to Rincewin's subconscious, as the single spell he knew came to rest upon his lips. The power of this magic was greater than Rincewin's fear of death, and he prayed silently to a tune to let the hooded figure free him before he let loose his hidden power. The magic and anticipation that filled the room blinded Rincewen as his body convulsed in agony at the effort of containing the spell from escaping. The cascade of inevitability built up until Rincewen was sure he would succumb, and then it was gone. His eyes strained to adjust to the relative darkness left in the wake of the halfling's magic. When he could see once more, he realized that Sippy and Gold were no longer there. He turned to Death, who had stopped chanting, and wordlessly, the two of them walked over to the edge, where Two Flower was casually taking pictures of the lava flow below. <laughs> Peering over the side of the walkway to the fires beneath, Rincewin could just make out the dual forms of the halflings, melting into the pool of flame. <laughs> the amulet began to scream as it met the furnace of its creation, and the trapped souls within began to escape. All Rincewin could manage to say at the unexpected sight was a profound... Huh. <laughs> he looked to Death, who shrugged his bony shoulders and swept down to collect the spirits of the halflings, apparently as shocked as Rincewind. Well, that was interesting, Two Flower said, as he put his camera and the tiny pictures back into his luggage. What happened? Rincewind asked. They were going all evil, and it looked like they were stressing you out, so I gave them a little push. They're not very strong, you know. Tiny bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Two Flower, I, I don't know what to say. Then don't. Two Flowers said, dropping the subject as quickly as he had dropped the halflings to their doom. Without missing a beat, he continued, I heard there's a giant wall up north where frozen corpses scour the land. Yes, said Rincewind, knowing and fearing what would come next. I'd really like to see that. The end. To be continued in part two. That's right, we had so much fiction that we couldn't cram it into a single episode. You lucky people. <laughs>